Wendell's world in sports. Let's be great. Let's be great. An entertaining and provocative look into the world of sports and beyond. Play our game. All right, play hard, but stay poised. Please feel free to go over to Apple iTunes and rate and review. Your feedback is welcome. Go rock this thing, huh? Love you, man. Go get it. And now, the host of the program from the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area, Wendell Wallace. Now, welcome to Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things to discuss today in the world of sports. Let's get right into it. Without question, in the boxing game, we have the answer to the question, who is the baddest man on the planet? You got that right. It is Tyson Fury, the heavyweight fight this past weekend between Fury and Deontay Wilder. Fury... One via seventh round TKO at the MGM Grand Garden Arena in Las Vegas, capturing the WBC World Heavyweight title. Wilder's corner threw in the towel to stop the fight. Now, Fury knocked down Wilder in the third round, knocked him down in the fifth round. And in my estimation, Fury won every round. He was dictating the pace. He was much more the aggressor. This was the best Tyson Fury I think any of us has ever seen. And it was amazing to see this type of performance by Tyson Fury. When you take a look at the couple of fights that he's had since his loss to Wilder, or since his draw, excuse me, to Wilder back in uh, December of 2018, where he fought Tom Schwartz and he fought Otto, Otto Weiland. One of the reasons why I said that, you know what, I thought Deontay Wilder was going to win. If you listened to my last podcast, I stated that I thought Wilder was going to get him in the sixth round. And one of the reasons why I thought that was because I thought that the way that Fury fights, and I knew that he was talking about, you know, I'm going to come in, I'm going to be more aggressive, and I'm going to be looking to take him out early. And he even predicted that he was going to knock him out in the second round. And I said, you know what? I think there is some truth to that. I don't think that Fury can win a fight the way he fought Wilder the first time, which ended up in a draw, that the fact that he was just going to try to box him, try to stay away from him. And I thought that Fury would realize that, you know what? I can't win a fight, especially if we're talking about American soil, we're talking about Las Vegas, Nevada. I saw what happened the last time where I clearly outboxed him. The fight, despite the fact that I was knocked down twice, I can't win a boxing match against, I can't win on points against Deontay Wilder in those, in those circumstances. So what I'm going to have to do is I'm going to have to be more aggressive. I'm going to have to look for that knockout. So I thought all those things were true. I didn't think that he was going to go in there and be reckless. I didn't think that he was going to put himself in harm's way on a consistent basis. But I thought because of Deontay Wilder's power, because of Deontay Wilder's right hand, I thought that in one of those times, whether he was truly sincerely thinking about trying to knock him out in the first round or at least get him before the end of the 12th, I thought that the one opportunity that Tyson Fury would give, or the first opportunity, or even the fifth opportunity that Tyson Fury would give Wilder to hit him with that right hand, as soon as it connected, the Chuck Liddell of the boxing game in terms of knocking motherfuckers out back in the day, Chuck Liddell, but Tyson, but uh, Deontay Wilder, once he landed that right hand, it was good night, Irene, oh, good night, Irene. So I thought it was a situation where, yes, Fury knew that it was like, look, I'm either going to get knocked out or I'm going to knock him out. And I thought in a situation like that, and I thought in a fight like that where it changed from being a boxing match to being just a fight, I thought that Deontay Wilder could win a fight. I thought maybe possibly that Tyson Fury, if we're just going on Olympic scoring, that he could win a boxing match. But this ain't the Olympics. This ain't the amateur ranks. This is Las Vegas, Nevada. This is Deontay Wilder's home country. And we're talking about a situation where... 
on points if it was close that the judges would probably give it to Deontay Wilder. So because of that, Fury was going to come in. He was going to be more aggressive. He was going to leave himself open, open and maybe it wouldn't be the first time. Maybe it wouldn't be the second time. Maybe it wouldn't be round three. Maybe it wouldn't be round five. Maybe it wouldn't even be round eight. But I thought sooner or later, Deontay Wilder was going to get him, was going to hit him with that right hand only once, which would set up the kill shot or the kill sequence of Wilder taking him out. And I thought all those things would happen by the sixth round. And I predicted that Wilder would win by a knockout in the sixth round. Where was I wrong? Where did I go wrong? Pray tell, pray tell. Man, I had no idea that Tyson Fury was going to come in at 273 pounds. I mean, and I'm not talking about a, I'm not talking about an Andy Ruiz Jr. type of 283 pounds or 273 pounds or putting on a lot more weight. I mean, this was a guy who was sincere, who was truly talking about, you know what, if I'm going to knock this guy out, I got to put on some bulk. I got to change my style. This is a guy in Fury who has always fought around the 250, 260 range when he's at his best. Then he comes in now at 273, and Wilder came in at, what, 230, what did he come in at, 231? If you take a look, Fury for the first fight against Wilder, 256. Wilder came in at 213, so both of these guys were like, you know what, I'm going to come in here, and I'm going to go for the knockout, I'm going to, you know, not leave this up to the judges. I ain't walking out with kissing my sister with that draw decision. So both men came in looking much bigger, looking much stronger, which would interpret that these guys were going to go for the knockout. But Fury at 273, and Wilder just at 231. If someone would have told me that Fury was going to come in with a in-shape, ready-to-fight 273, I would have said, hell yeah, man, I think Fury. Now, hold on for a second. Now we got a situation where that power by Wilder is going to be mitigated. Because now you're taking a look at a guy in Tyson Fury. So when he hits you with that jab, when he hits you with that overhand, overhand right, when he hits you with them hooks, all of a sudden now, he ain't hitting Deontay Wilder at 256. He ain't hitting Deontay Wilder at the shape that he was in against Otto Whalen and Tom Schwartz. Swartz. All of a sudden now, this man Tyson Fury is coming in much bigger, much stronger, with much more punching power over a guy who he has a 42-inch, excuse me, a 42-pound advantage in. So it was just a brilliant strategy. When Fury would box him, Fury with the one, two, one, two. The brilliant thing is, is that every time he would get close, every time that he would get close to the Wilder zone, what did he do? Exactly. He tied him up. He held on to him. He made Wilder feel that 273 pounds. He made Wilder carry that 273 pounds. Sometimes he put him in a side headlock on many occasions and punched him. Got a point taken away from it, but big deal. Do you think Tyson Fury was caring about having points taken away? You can take all the points you want from me. I'm going for the knockout. I'm not going for a decision. So to have Wilder, and Wilder can sit up here and talk about, you know, the garb and the outfit and the costume, walking to the ring, you know, wore him out. You know what, wore him out, carrying 273 pounds when you're only 231. And for Deontay Wilder, it's not like he can muscle up to 250 to 260. That is a distinct advantage if they ever fight again, that Fury will have over Deontay Wilder, the ability at six foot nine to put on 273, to put on 275 and wear it like he did and have, have it be a main asset for Fury to use against an opponent, say like Deontay Wilder, again, if they fight for the third time. It was, it was a brilliant strategy. It, it absolutely was. For the first time in Deontay Wilder's career, and you also have to think about this also, for the first time in his career, 
Wilder didn't come into that fight with a physical advantage. Every other fighter that he fought, every other fighter that he beat, it was a situation where physically he was a much more imposing fighter. And because of that, you're taking a look at the skyscraper of a man six foot seven with the power of a right hand. Many people who know the sport of boxing, many boxing historians will sit there and talk about that, you know, forget George Foreman, forget Ernie Shavers, forget uh, all these other big time punchers, George Foreman and such. I mean, we're talking about Deontay Wilder being right up there as having some of the greatest power for a heavyweight. Now, all of a sudden, he's stepping into a ring with a guy who's not only taller than he is, but also bigger than he is. So right there, that takes away a distinct advantage that Wilder has had over all of his opponents and something to where I don't think that he's ever even recognized. I don't even think that he even knows how to deal with that. We're talking about in the amateurs. We're talking about when he first gets started fighting. We're talking about when he first turned pro. We're talking about in the gym. There's no way to replicate six foot nine, 273 pounds of boxing skill and a tactician that Tyson Fury is. What would Deontay Wilder do against that? We saw. We saw exactly what he did. He looked confused. He looked timid. He looked reactive. He looked defensive right from the opening bell. In terms of, I have no idea what the hell I'm supposed to do here. Because it seemed to me, it was almost like Fury hit him. And for the first time in a long time, Deontay Wilder said, ouch. I mean, it's one thing to get hit in the jaw. One thing to get hit in the jaw and be like, oh, shit, but damn, this, that, and the other. And kind of get woozy a little bit, this, that, and the other. That's a different kind of, that's a different kind of dealings that you have to deal with in the ring. When you get hit by someone like Tyson Fury at the weight that he was in with the power that he was bringing, he didn't have to hit Deontay Wilder flush on the jaw for him to, be, to get to those attributes that he was displaying in that fight. All Tyson Fury had to do was touch him. Hit him hard with a right. Hit him hard with a jab. Hit him in the arm. Hit him in the shoulder. Hit him in the chest. Hit him in the, the belt buckle. Hit, hit him somewhere. And right there, it was like Deontay Wilder was just like, ouch, damn, that fucking hurt. Oh, damn. So it was just a matter of, he, he almost got a little Brock Lesnar in him in terms of, you know what, hey, don't hit me. Ouch, oh, ooh, ouch. Hey, I don't want to. I don't want to try to go in and try for my right hand. I don't want to try to initiate the contact. I don't want to try to go ahead and dictate the pace. I don't want to get hit by this guy because every time this guy is hitting me, whether it be in my arms, whether it be in my shoulders, whether it be on my wrist, whether it be on the ribs or whatever, every time Tyson Fury touches me, this shit hurts. And it hurts a lot. And I guarantee you for the first time in his boxing life, for the first time since he put on the gloves, Deontay Wilder has never been through that before. And I don't even know, even in training, that you can even find somebody to replicate the power, the skill, the combination of both that you're going to be facing when you're going to be fighting Tyson Fury. So this was something where Deontay Wilder was in a ring in a foreign situation. He had no idea exactly how to deal with it. Fought like he, again, fought like he was just like, hey man, I just don't want to get hit. I mean, screw trying to get for the knockout. And it was almost like when he was throwing punches, he wasn't throwing for power. He wasn't throwing for, he wasn't throwing in a aggressive style. He wasn't throwing in a, I'm going to knock you out style. When Deontay Wilder looked like he was throwing punches at Tyson Fury, it was almost as far as, again, it was a defensive type of mode. It was like, just get the fuck off me. Get off me. Man, just stop hitting me. This shit hurts. Get off. Just leave me alone. It wasn't, he wasn't looking for, when he was punching, he wasn't looking for certain, he wasn't looking to 
strive. He wasn't looking to win. He was looking to survive and just get him off him. So I really didn't take that into account. I saw, and how, why would you? I mean, because if you're Deontay Wilder, you're like, okay, now height-wise, sure, we fought the first time. So height-wise, I can kind of deal with that. A guy who's 6'9", who's a boxer, jab this, that, and the other. Okay, I've dealt with that with Tyson Fury before. And I went 12 rounds with the guy. So, okay, I got that. There was no idea. Deontay Wilder's corner, the fighter himself, I'm quite sure he had no idea that Fury was going to come in this physically strong, this physically imposing, and he had nothing. He couldn't do anything about it. So when I was talking about it, I thought Wilder would win the second fight on Saturday against Tyson Fury. I thought it was going to be because, hey, we've already seen this before in terms of Wilder dealing with his height. I didn't think Fury was going to come in at 273 and wear it so well. And here's also another thing that I didn't take into account when I said that I thought Wilder would knock out Tyson Fury in the sixth round. I'm owning it. I'm owning it. I'm not running from it. I'm not hiding from it. I'm not making excuses for it. I'm not blaming Deontay Wilder because he let me down in terms of my prediction of the fight. I'm telling you, this is the rear, This is where I was wrong. This is where I was wrong. So I'm explaining to you why, you know, where I was not educated enough, where I didn't take enough time to really think about some of the truer nuances, some of the other nuances of the fight going into it that would have maybe swayed my opinion to go with Tyson Fury for the win in such dominating fashion. So I didn't I didn't take into account the weight gain, the strength that was added, the match with his aggressive posture. And I also didn't really give the respect as far as the change in training camps that uh, Fury went from, going from Ben Davison to Javon Sugarhill Stewart for this fight. He looked a lot more aggressive. He looked a lot more confident. He took the fight more seriously than he ever did before. During training camp, Fury employed a full-time nutritionist and cook. In fact, he said that, you know, about his training before the fight, he said that I've limit, limit, limited myself to an hour a day on the phone. I'm not having any Diet Cokes. I'm not having 100 coffees a day. And I'm really taking it to the utmost seriousness, seriousness that I can. I had no idea. I thought Fury, after his comeback, after being on the brink of, of suicide, I thought that he was taking all of these fights. And I'm not saying that he took the Otto Whalen fight as seriously as he did the first Deontay Wilder fight or even this fight because we're talking about a major step up in competition. But I thought that Fury was going to be more dedicated to get the most out of, out of his ability every time that he stepped into the ring. If he wasn't going to give 100%, I thought that he would give at the very, very least 85 to 90%. But according to Tyson Fury, all these other fights, and I wonder... I guess he had that same attitude and that same type of training camp mentality in terms of taking it light and not dedicating himself to the utmost. I guess he had that when he was also fighting Wilder the first time. If you take a look at the physique, if you take a look at the fact he came in at 256. I'm just interested to see now going forward if Fury is going to be able to harness the dedication that it takes to become an elite fighter, to fight like he did against Wilder, uh, excuse me, against the Wilder on a consistent basis, to be this good, to be at this high of a level, knowing now what it takes, knowing now the dedication that it takes, not just as far as honing your craft, but all the other things that goes into being an elite fighter, such as the training and the nutrition and getting your rest and the mental distractions being taken away and all those things. As far as, I wonder if he's going to be able to carry that over because, um, we see the results when that happens. But yeah, I 
definitely, definitely like, okay, he's going over from Davison to Stewart. This guy is an older fighter. What is he going to do in terms of changing his routine? What's he going to do? Again, the old adage, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. What was Stewart going to do that Davison couldn't do in terms of getting him ready for this fight against Deontay Wilder? Well, we definitely saw what happened. It was a huge, huge improvement from the training and from the performance that Fury put on on Saturday night. And it was unbelievable. It was something I don't think anybody could have anticipated. Even the most ardent Tyson Fury fans couldn't have imagined the performance that he put on against Deontay Wilder on Saturday. And and, in contrast, I don't think, because we've never seen it before, it was just interesting. It was, was just fascinating to see Deontay Wilder be dominated like that. And because of his limited boxing abilities, because of the fact that this guy's not a natural boxer, because this guy got into the fight game so late in when you're comparing <coughs> him fighting against a guy like Tyson Fury, who I mentioned before in the last podcast, came from a family of professional boxers. So he's been fighting for a much longer time. He's much more polished. He's much more skilled. He's much more experienced as far as just being a fighter is concerned compared to Wilder, who Really, boxing is not his first love. Boxing is not something that comes natural to him. Playing football, playing basketball. He wanted to play. His dream growing up was was to play football for the Alabama Crimson Tide in college and then go on to the NFL. And if that didn't work out, plan B was to go to the NBA. So when those two things fell out of place, or when those two things didn't work because of poor grades and other things and injuries, and he was working at a grocery store and he had a baby that was being born and she was born with some physical deficiencies, he knew that he had to do something with his physical gifts that the God Lord that the Lord had given to him. He needed to do something to 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 fulfill his potential as a physical specimen and a physical being. So if he couldn't do football, if he couldn't do basketball, I guess the next best thing for him was to go ahead and to do boxing. So at the age of twenty, that's exactly what he did. So he started off very late in the game. He's 34 years old right now, but he started off very late in the game. And because of that, there's just some natural things that that he doesn't have for being a fighter or for being a boxer that Tyson Fury had. And Tyson Fury exploited, not just in the first fight that they had, but also now in the rematch. So when we talk about, you know, adversity and all these things, when was the last time as far as Deontay Wilder is concerned that he faced adversity like this. When was the last time that even Deontay Wilder even faced a challenge like this? He's had some pretty interesting fights. He's had some very important fights before, but as far as the magnitude of this fight is concerned, when was the last time that there had been any time in Tyson in um, Deontay Wilder's career, not just in the professional ranks, but also in the amateur ranks? When has he faced this type of adversity in the ring? He hasn't. So, it was just interesting to see his first time facing this type of adversity that he looked as inept and timid and confused as he did. I mean, normally if you're a fighter who has been doing this since the age of 12 and you go and you box in the AAU and the Golden Gloves and the Olympic and all, you know, you go through the, you go through the career path that a lot of championship fighters uh, face, especially in the lower weight divisions where you don't have the ability to, you, know, you have a weight limit in the welterweight, in the junior welterweight, in the middleweight, in the light heavyweight and such. In the heavyweights, you can come in you can come in there at 400 pounds. It doesn't matter. There's no weight limit for being a heavyweight. So this was a situation where, you know, Deontay Wilder 
didn't even have to really work on a lot of his skills to the point of where a lot of lower tier fight, lower tier fighters do because again because as long as that right hand is still there as long as that power is still there as long as that physical advantage is still there he doesn't really need to learn how to box he doesn't really need to learn how to throw a proper jab he really doesn't need a lot of ring intelligence or a lot of boxing intelligence that is accumulated through years and years of fighting in the amateur ranks and then in the pros before getting to the level of championship level that Deontay Wilder was at when he fought Tyson Fury. So again, on the one hand, I said, I can't believe, I can't believe that Tyson Fury did this to Deontay Wilder. Deontay Wilder looks so lost and he looks so timid and he looks so defensive and he looks so confused. But really, if you take a look at Deontay Wilder's career and you take a look at his career as a boxer and the avenues that he got to get to the point where he was at and the opponent that he was facing on the past of Saturday, you could see where the outcome really wasn't that uh, really wasn't that surprising. And I, I didn't put any of that stock, I didn't put any of that thought into my decision to select Deontay Wilder, predicting that Deontay Wilder would knock out Tyson Fury in the sixth round. That's what I predicted. I was wrong, and now I see where the error of my way. So. Moving forward, we will go ahead and I will put that in the memory bank and I'll say, okay, okay, if Deontay Wilder fights again, which will be interesting to see if Deontay Wilder can ever get back to the Deontay Wilder he was both mentally and physically before he stepped into that ring against Tyson Fury on Saturday, this past Saturday night. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. You know another person who Tyson Fury should be thanking for his performance on Saturday, as well as his trainer and those close to him and everybody. Another person that he should be thanking profusely is Otto Wallen. What? Otto Wallen. In his last fight, if you remember, in September against him, Tyson Fury, man, that guy looked average. He looked beatable. He looked like he could be knocked out. And despite coming in at 254, he looked out of shape, which is interesting the fact that at 254 he looked out of shape and then at 273 he looked fantastic but he didn't look really he didn't look he didn't look like anything that we saw on Saturday night against Deontay Wilder and against Wallen he was cut twice on his right el on his right eyebrow and requires 47 stitches to close there's a speculation there was some talking about well this was supposed to be an easy tune-up. This was supposed to be a, hey, look how good I look type of fight for Tyson Fury against this guy so we can build up more pay-per-view buys so we can get more people interested in this fight moving forward against Deontay Wilder coming up. This was all, this was the, this was the idea of Fury taking this fight against Whalen and Fury did not look good. I think if it was anybody else other than Tyson Fury that that fight would have been stopped. Now, I, Saw the fight and clearly, clearly, Tyson Fury won the fight. I'm not saying this was a situation where it came down to, ooh, he might actually lose. No, there was a situation where the fight might have been stopped because of a cut over the eye. But in terms of the skill level, in terms of who was willing to fight, that was never a question. That was never in doubt. It was Tyson Fury. But in doing so, this was supposed to be a guy who he was supposed to knock out within the first two, three, four rounds. This was supposed to be a guy that basically it was a showcase fight. This wasn't supposed to be something where he went 12 rounds and actually got a little bit of a sweat. I mean, this was supposed to be the heavyweight version of Canelo Alvarez versus Rocky Fielding. 
I mean, this was supposed to be just an easy get to the next stage. Let's build up this fighter type of fight. And Tyson Fury did not look good. And maybe, maybe that situation, maybe becoming close to having the opportunity of losing your chance of that big payday, losing your chance to make a statement of being the best heavyweight fighter out there, and also losing the opportunity to have a platform to go ahead and speak about things that Fury was passionate about, speaking about mental health and health and speaking about his issues and being a spokesperson for that. That came dangerously close to being taken away against, of all people, Otto Whalen. So I'm quite sure Fury came back and that was, I think that was one of the main reasons why he said Ben Davidson, great guy, we're friends, we'll remain friends, I respect you, but I've got to take my career in a different direction because if I look like this against Deontay Wilder, I'm going to get my ass knocked out and all these things that I want to do as a fighter, as a spokesperson, as a role model, those are all down the drain. Forget about the money aspect, forget about the fame aspect, forget about all those other things, those those sugary, those non-substantive type of things. I'm talking about something where I can make a change in people's lives by talking about my mental illness, by talking about the journey that I went through from being damn near suicidal 400 pounds and going to bed every night praying to the Lord that I don't wake up to the position that I'm in now, which is the baddest man on the planet. I want to be in that position to make that happen. I want to be this generation's or this, my country's Muhammad Ali in terms of the good that I can do in terms of being a leader, in terms of being a voice, in terms of being a public figure that can move the needle, that can make things happen, that can help people. So the performance that I gave against Otto Whalen, that ain't going to cut it. I need to go somewhere where I can be, where I can be pushed, where I can raise my level, where I can take it to the next level, where I can learn new things, where it's comfortable being uncomfortable because I know once the uncomfortableness goes away, that I'm going to be better, that I'm going to be a better fighter in all of my dreams, not just monetarily, just not from a, you know, not just from a cookies and cream and everything nice and sugar and spice type of deal, but real substantive things are going to be in my abilities to grab, to hold, to use, to save, to help. So I think Otto Whelan played a huge role in that because I think if Tyson Fury went out against Whelan at 200 and 54 pounds looking like he did and knocked out, knocked him out in three rounds. I don't think that that Tyson Fury would have beaten Deontay Wilder. I don't think a Ben Davison, the way things were going, Ben Davison led training camp, led Ben Davison for Tyson Fury. I don't think he would have gotten to 273. I don't think that he would have taken the seriousness of the fight against Wilder if he didn't go through the war that was his fight against Otto Whalen. So he, again, needs to give a handshake and a thank you very much to Otto Whalen for waking him up and realizing that, you know what, there's something that needs to be done. There's, there's some changes that I need to be, that needs to be made. And I'm going to change them right now before I get into that ring Saturday night against Deontay Wilder and man for Tyson Fury did it show. Wendell's World and Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us speaking about what was happening this past Saturday night on the boxing match. The baddest man in the planet. The baddest man. You could make some nonsense about her. You know what? The baddest man on the planet. I thought it was Stephen Miocic. Nah, it's still 
as far as when we talk about the baddest man on the planet, and we're talking about people as a whole. We're not just talking about fight fans. We're just not talking about MMA fans. We're not just talking about boxing fans. We're not just talking about UFC fans. We're talking about just the overall general general public when they're talking about who's the baddest man because of the history, because of the fact that boxing has such a long and story history over mixed martial arts. Many people are going to say the baddest man on the planet would be the boxing heavyweight champion of the world. We can have another argument on another day if a 6'5", Stipe Miocic could really handle a 6'9", 275-pound, highly motivated Tyson Fury on any given night. That's a, another topic for another day. But just for this discussion, and speaking about what happened this past Saturday night down at the MGM in, in, um, in Las Vegas, Tyson Fury is the baddest man on the planet. So here's also something that I want to talk to you about. Hold on for a second. Listen to this. See if you agree with me on this. I thought it was the right decision for a Wilder's corner to throw in the towel. I thought Mark Breland made the correct decision 100%. I, it's the fighter's job. To fight till his dying breath. I know Deontay Wilder got out there and said, man, you know, the only thing that I wish, I wish I would have been taken off my shield and I wish that I would have been knocked down and this, that, and the other. And basically, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to slay me, slay me, that type of thing, that type of mentality, you know, kill or be killed, that type of mentality, you know, as a, as a boxer is concerned. When you're a fighter, when you're a boxer, when you step into those ropes, you need to have that type of mentality. You need to have that type of attitude. And it's admirable. And it's great, and I'm glad that Deontay Wilder ain't no punk and all this other thing by talking about I ain't going to quit. Don't call me chicken. Don't call me no chicken Wilder or anything like that. I'm strong. The Mexicans are going to respect me because of my because of my machismo to say, you know what, if you're going to slay me, slay me. Nobody take me out. That's cool, and that's fine. But see, it's your corner's job, and really they're also the referee's job, to make sure that it never gets to that situation where – you're sitting there and you're like, okay, go ahead and take me out. Because if that means taking you out means killing you, that ain't good for anybody. That ain't good for you. That's not good for your parents. That ain't good for your loved ones. That ain't good for your kids. That ain't good for the kid's mother. That ain't good for your friends. That ain't good for the sport. That ain't good for the other person you're fighting. And there's no admirable way. There's no honor and glory bestowed upon someone who gets killed in the ring. Because you can say, wow, what a guy. You took him. Dying like he did against Ray Mancini, fighting for the very end. Wow, that's great. Wow, that's admirable. Wow, that's wonderful. Do you know his mother, Dooku Kim? Go back and watch the fight. I don't even think you can watch it. But the fight between Dooku Kim and Ray Boom Boom Mancini. Back when it came on CBS a long, long time ago, back in the 80s. Dooku Kim was an unknown fighter from South Korea. He was getting his ass kicked. I mean, he was giving it as much as he was getting it. But, you know, Mancini finally forged ahead, I think in the 14th or 15th round, knocked him out, Dooku slumped in his corner, and he died right there on television. I mean, he didn't, he didn't die right there on television, but he started the dying process for real once the fight was over and the fighters were still in the ring. Do you know that man's mother, because the loss of her son, she just couldn't take it, she committed suicide? I mean, devastated the family, devastated the mother, devastated the people that they love, so... Yeah, we talk about this nonsense about, oh, you know, fight till the finish and take them out and all those types of things. And no, no, I believe in the old, hey, man, this is just a sport. This is just a way for you to make money. This is your profession. It ain't who you are. And if it is who you are, you need to 
you need to take a hard look at yourself to figure out, you know, this ain't me. A boxer shouldn't be defined as a human being, who he is as a human being for his ability to step into a ring and punch somebody in the face, punch somebody in the ribs, punch somebody in the arms, punch somebody in the shoulders, see how much punishment you can take. That doesn't measure you as a man. The way that you treat others, the way that you treat yourself, the way that you abide by the rules, a way that you love whoever that you love and praise from the heavens above. The way that you treat others, that's how you are should be regarded as a man. That's how, That should be where your strength should come from. The more important thing, your inner strength, your moral strength, your character strength, your physical strength should be near the bottom of the totem pole. And if you are a man who sits there and, and, and you know decides what type of man you want to be or how strong you are as a man based on your physical strength, then you've got issues and you've got some things that you need to discuss. So this stuff about I want to be taken on on my shield and I want to be this, that, and the other. Who cares, man? That, that, that doesn't make you a man. That doesn't make you more man than someone else as far as someone stopping the stopping the fight. Well, we don't do that. You don't do that. Who made up these rules? Who made up these rules? Who made up these rules talking about unboxing? You need to be taken out or you need to be knocked out. What fool, what ignorant somebody, what probably someone who's never even stepped in the prize ring before and fought at the level of a Deontay Wilder or a Tyson Fury or Anthony Joshua, who made up these rules talking about, God damn it, I sure wish that uh, Tyson Fury could have inflicted more pain on Deontay Wilder. Wilder, damn, I just hate the fact that Deontay Wilder is still standing and still coherent after this fight's over. He should have been knocked unconscious. I mean, what kind of ignorance, what kind of fool, what kind of barbarian would think something like that? Now, of course, we can all moan and complain and argue and debate whether a fight has been stopped or not or whether a fight was stopped so early. But if someone is taking a beating, if someone is um, clearly out of the fight and has no chance of winning, you stop the fight. Again, it's the fighter's job, both the one who's getting the ass, who's getting his ass kicked and the person who's delivering that ass whooping, it's his job to keep going and to keep going and to keep going until the referee stops the fight via his decision or the corner's decision. The fighters keep going, they keep going, they keep going. But it's the trainers, it's the cornermen's, it's the referee's job to get in there and say, all right, man, enough is enough. I'm going to save you from yourself. And that's admirable. And that's, and that's exactly what Mark Breland did and he made the right decision. My, if I'm Deontay, and I'm one of his family members or someone who really cares about him, what, should, what I should be concerned about or what those guys should be concerned about is what his head trainer J.D. said about the stoppage. He said, quote, Mark threw in the towel. I didn't think that he should have. Deontay is the kind of guy that's a go-out-on-the-shield kind of a guy, and he will tell you straight, straight up, don't throw in the towel. You, you always have to consider Deontay is a fearsome puncher, he always has that shot. He always has that shot to land a big shot and turn things around. During the round, Mark said something about throwing the towel in, and I told him I didn't think he should do that. Then the fight went a little longer, and I saw the towel go in. We'll talk about it and figure out exactly what happened there. What do you mean figure out what happened there? Tyson Fury was whooping his ass. He was inflicting dangerous punishment on the guy, and Breland said enough is enough. What is, what is JD's talking about? What is his head trainer talking about? Or Mark D's, excuse me. Or um, um, JD's, yeah. What is exactly is he talking about? You should have let the fight go on? And he said that publicly? He doubled down? 
Hey, man, do you give? A, do you care about this guy as a human being? I mean, even if you saw this guy as nothing more than a meal ticket, don't you want this guy to go out with another big payday, which means you can get another paycheck? Why are you sitting there talking about he needs to go out on the shield? That's ignorant. That's stupid. That's ridiculous. And you're the head trainer? You're in charge of something like that? So Mark Breland basically had to overrule you for the safety of the guy that you're supposed to be caring about? That's, that's very alarming. About Deontay Wilder and his family members, I'm very, very alarmed. Now, again, using the machismo, I'm the baddest man on the planet. This is a profession that I chose to do, and I have that warrior's mentality. I know Deontay Wilder would sit there and side with his trainer talking about, yeah, take me out, take me out, take me out. Deontay, you have eight kids. You have a fiancé. You have a child, a daughter, who was born in 2005 with spina bifida, so she's 15 years old. Fuck that bullshit about being taken out on the shield. Some of your kids were at that fight, Deontay. Your fiancé was at that fight. What, you think it would be manly? You think it would be good for your kids? You thought it would be great? If they led you out there on a stretcher past your, past your little children? Past your fiancé? That's supposed to be manly? That's supposed to be the right thing to do? That's supposed to be machismo? No, that's ignorant, man. That's ridiculous. You don't worry about a situation like that about, wow, I want to make sure that I go out on my shield. You think about your kids. You think about your future. You think about the next paycheck that's coming down the road. You make sure that you have the ability, if you want to continue to fight as a profession, that you make sure you save something in the tank so you can come back and get yourself another payday to provide for your family in their, in their future. You don't sit there and talk about, gee, I wish that I would have been obliterated in this fight by Tyson Fury. That's the way to go. Yeah, my kid really would have enjoyed that. To see me knocked on the floor, knocked on a canvas, unconscious. I'm quite sure my little daughter and my little children and my kids would have been sitting up there going, that's it, daddy. Yeah, baby. That's it, dad. Going on the shield. That's what I'm talking about. I mean, come on. Like his little, like his little kids in, in the locker room after the fight are going up to him saying, dad, what's up, man? I mean, you know, really? You you call for the stoppage? Really? You didn't get knocked out? You couldn't go around your shield? What kind of father do I have, man? How could I tell my kids at the school that I go to, I got a father who's a wuss because he didn't let Tyson Fury finish him off. Oh, this is terrible. What lessons are you teaching me, Dad? Oh, my goodness gracious. No, you think, what, you think his kids are going to come out like that? You think his kids are going to be saying that at the end of the fight? No. You make sure that your kids are okay. You make sure that your fiance is okay. You make sure that your parents who are watching this fight are okay. Like his mom and dad is going to call him up after the fight and talk about, damn it, damn it, Deontay, why didn't you let Tyson Fury knock you the fuck out? What the hell's the matter with you? Like, that's going to be a, a conversation that Deontay's going to have with his mother. God, I hope not. But please, I, I, it, was just, it was just an absolutely ridiculous and idiotic and short-sighted and alarming comment that J.D.'s, the head trainer for Deontay Wilder, made. At the time of the stoppage, two judge had it 59-52 for Fury, while the other one had it 59-53. And again, he had no chance of winning. I mean, this wasn't where he was. He was one shot away from turning it around. No, he wasn't. What are you talking about? There are very few times in that fight that Wilder threw a punch in an offensive forward momentum position. Very, very few. Again, most of the time when he was throwing punches, it was just to... Get him the fuck off me. That's what he was doing. When Wilder was throwing those fights, he, wasn't, he didn't have any knockout power behind him. And after the third round, when he was getting his ass kicked from the third round to the seventh round, you think that all of a sudden he was going to conjure up the power to go ahead and knock Tyson Fury out, 6'9", uh, 273 pounds, of that man coming forward and whooping on his ass like that? 
that all of a sudden Deontay Wilder at 231, six foot seven, was going to go ahead and after taking an ass whooping like he did to with one punch, turn the whole fight around? Come on, Jay. That's idiotic. That's that's, that's ridiculous. That is absolutely ridiculous. You know, ask Eddie Futch, who's no longer with us, unfortunately, but Eddie Futch might have saved the life of Joe Frazier in the thriller in Manila when he decided that, you know what, I'm not going to have Joe Frazier come out for the 15th round. A man has been beat up, a man is blind, and Ali was about to quit. Eddie Futch was like, I don't give a fuck. And he said that before, look, I, he's got kids. He's got a wife. He's got a family. He's going to want to enjoy those kids as long as he can. So it doesn't make any difference. He's, he, he doesn't get paid by the round. You know, Jay, Deontay Wilder doesn't get paid by the round. He doesn't get paid less if he gets knocked out or if he loses. It doesn't, he doesn't get a bonus for being carried out on his shield. He doesn't get any extra money for that. So have that man fight for a human, fight for another day. Absolutely ridiculous. And speaking of fighting for another day on Wendell's World of Sports with Wendell Wallace, your host, should there be a third fight? Do you really want to see a third Tyson Fury, Deontay Wilder fight after the beatdown that we saw in the second fight and after what we saw even in the first fight? Do you really want to see that again? I'll tell you next. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things to discuss today in the World of Sports. Speaking about the heavyweight championship fight this past Saturday at the MGM Grand in Las Wages, Nevada. Tyson Fury winning over Deontay Wilder, a TKO in the seventh round. So, as I mentioned before, does anyone want to see a third fight between these two fighters? Now, according to the terms of the two fight contracts Wilder and Fury signed last year. Wilder is owed a third bout versus Fury without any bouts for either boxer between their second and third encounters. Wilder has 30 days from the night of this fight, which was past this past Saturday to exercise that contractual right. A third fight is supposed to take place by August, but that hasn't been determined. And Tyson, excuse me, and Deontay Wilder and both Tyson Fury and Deontay Wilder are like, sure, I'll, we'll do a rematch or we'll do a third fight. Why not? My question is, and look, I mean, if I say for both of these guys, as far as do you want a third fight or not, how much money are you going to give me? I mean, how much money can we make? And so that's, well, that's what it is about the fight game. That's what it is about any type of endeavor that these guys take. Man, how much money can I make? Both of these guys are, are over the age of 30. Both of these guys are at least furious talking about, I want, once my contract is fulfilled, that I want to move on and go to other things and Wilder's going to be 35 this year in October. So, I mean, this is a situation where it's kind of like, yeah, you're at the point now in your career 
where it's like, I'm just fighting for big fights. Now I'm talking about retirement money. Now I'm talking about generational money. Now I'm talking about making sure that my great-great-grandkids are living some life of luxury, making sure that they don't have to worry about where their next meal is going to be coming from, whether they're going to be able to have a roof over their head, what kind of roof is it going to be, what part of town is it going to be, where are we going to be eating, where are we going to be sleeping, what type of neighborhood are we going to be living in. I want to make sure that those areas, I want to make sure that those situations are top-notch. So this next fight, who I fight next, hey, is all about how much money can you give me. So, yeah, from that standpoint, if I'm Tyson Fury and if I'm Deontay Wilder, of course I want a third fight. Of course I want to make sure... I want to get back in that ring, especially I'm interested to see mentally how this affects Deontay Wilder. We don't know how losing for the first time affects somebody, especially when you're speaking about someone who was who has been, quote unquote, the bully, a physical bully, but a bully in a good way. When you're speaking about Deontay Wilder, I'm not talking about a bully like your typical bully. I'm just talking about once you get in the ring because of your size, because of your strength. Because of your power, and in, in Wilder's case, because of that right hand, he has been that bully. He has never had to really sharpen his boxing skills. He's never really had to go to a plan B or a plan C on most of those fights because he knows that he's just a right hand away from ending a fight and winning a fight. So, yeah, it will be interesting to see exactly how Wilder, if Wilder wants to come back. Now, the fight, the, the, the one thing I will say this, and I mentioned before about you know, go ahead if you're Deontay and you only have maybe, what, three, four more fights at the very most. It all depends how things go. But I'm guessing at 35 years of age, I don't know if he wants to fight till 40, but let's say his shelf life as a top-tier, legit heavyweight fighter is, say, another three to four years. So we're talking about anywhere between five fights to maybe seven or eight at the very most. I'm thinking maybe if he fights twice a year at the age of 35, twice a year at the age of 36, maybe 137, 138. It depends on how things go, of course. When we're speaking about the challengers, when we're speaking about the money, when we're speaking about the opportunity. So I'm just going to guesstimate to say that if Wilder's going to be sticking around for another two or three years, he has another anywhere between another three to six or seven fights left in him. The fight that the fact that he already wants to go ahead and exercise his con- the clause in his contract, the fight for a third time, interesting, very interesting. Normally, in a situation like that, when someone normally does that, especially when we're talking about combat sports, when someone goes that route, like I want an immediate rematch, I want the biggest purse out there. That usually tells me, from the small sample size of the examples that I'm going to throw at you. That usually tells me that that fighter is kind of not in this for the long term. That maybe he's in it for maybe another one, two fights at the very most, and then it's time to get out. If you go ahead and you do something like that. If it's something where it's kind of like, hey, you know what, I have to kind of take a few steps back before I get back to have that opportunity again, that shows me that, you know what, this guy is going to be in this for the long term. Now, again, a lot of factors play into this. Deontay Wilder is not... 29 years old. He's not 31 years old. He's going to be 35 years old. So his shelf life, his life expectancy in terms of being a elite heavyweight fighter is very limited. So because of that, I can understand why. Again, because of money, because he has eight kids, because he has a child with physical disabilities, because he has a, a wife and all these other things. I can understand the fact that, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and 
get this big money fight right now. I'm not going to go ahead and build my way back up again because I don't have three or four years or even two years to wait for another opportunity like I could have waited if I was 25 or 27 or 29 or I was up and coming where I could take some time to learn some new things, where I could take some time to add some more tools to my toolbox, where I could take some time to really understand why I lost this fight, really learn to really absorb the reason why I lost from this fight and come back as a better fighter, not just for just the rematch, but also for fights down the road. Say, for instance, what GSP George St. Pierre did when he lost in the first round to Matt Serra. Used that as fuel, used that as an education, used that as knowledge to become the greatest welterweight, one of the greatest MMA fighters of all time. So the, um, Deontay Wilder is going to go ahead and take that third fight. And again, it will be interesting to see exactly how he responds mentally from that first loss in the devastating fashion that he lost. He didn't lose a tight decision. There was no excuses. There was no, I was robbed. There was no go back and check the tape. And after watching it again, I thought I really did win that fight. This wasn't Michael Spinks over Larry Holmes or something like that. It was, wasn't that type of fight. I mean, Deontay Wilder was dominated. Deontay Wilder got his ass kicked and Deontay Wilder lost the fight. You can talk about going into the ring with too much garb and too much, you know, weight on the costume. And by the time the fight started, his legs had nothing. Hey man, that's your fault. That's, that's, I mean, that's your fault. And I think that's truly bullshit. But, you know, whatever. Hey, man, whatever you want to do to gin up interest for the third fight, whatever excuse you want to make, if you use that, if you can use that for motivation and fuel to go out there and try to become the best fighter that you can for the next fight, hey, man, go ahead and do it. I'm not the one that's getting in there fighting that monster named Tyson Fury. So, hey, man, whatever, whatever lights the ignition, and go ahead and go for it and do what you need to do. So, the first two fights... When we're speaking about Wilder and Fury, and I'm speaking about this fight here on Wendell's World of Sports, the podcast, Wendell Wallace, that's spelled W-E-N-D-E-L-L-W-A-L-L-A-C-E, the podcast. So the first two fights between Tyson Fury and Deontay Wilder, the pay-per-view and viewership for the first fight at $75 in HD. The fight generated 325 buys in the United States, 450,000 buys in the United Kingdom, 325,000 buys in the United States. Showtime delayed broadcast a week after drew an average of 488,000 viewers, peaking at 590,000 in the United States. That's for the first Wilder Fury fight. For the rematch, according to several sources close to the event and the official pay-per-view broadcast, the Wilder Fury rematch is going to easily surpass the Lennox Lewis versus Evander Holyfield rematch, and the fight will produce the largest live gate in heavyweight boxing history. So there is some there there is some flicker that can ignite into a flame for this to possibly go on for a third fight. But I just say this, you know, we've seen 19 rounds of Fury versus Wilder. Fury's won 13 of those rounds. He's outboxed him. He's outstruck him. He's physically stronger than him. I don't think that he is in fear of Wilder's power anymore. So my only question is, can Wilder come back just as much mentally than physically to be competitive against him? If you're Deontay Wilder, where do you go? Because again, let's say for instance, you're, you're just hoping that maybe the shine, maybe the attention, maybe the spotlight, maybe the fame and glory 
that Tyson Fury has of beating me, maybe that goes to a head, his head, maybe for the third fight, he doesn't train as, train as hard. He's not as motivated. He, all of a sudden now, he's, he's starting to drink coffee again, and he's starting to drink Diet Cokes again, and, and he's got his cell phone out for five hours instead of one hour, and he doesn't eat the food that his cook and nutritionist are setting for him. Maybe he gets a little hubris, and he comes into the fight, kind of like what Riddick Bowe did against Evander Holyfield the second time that they fought, or maybe what Buster Douglas did against Evander Holyfield when they fought for the heavyweight championship, or maybe what Andy Ruiz, Ruiz Jr. did against Anthony Joshua in recent um, recent heavyweight fight history. So maybe Wilder can come back from that, but I don't see a path for victory for Deontay Wilder if Fury is going to be at this level of professionalism and this level of fighting acumen, both physically and mentally, when they get back into the ring. So again... From a fighter standpoint, if this is the best, biggest money bout that can be made, if you're Deontay Wilder, okay, I'll go ahead and understand if you're taking it, but I'm not really interested in watching it. Now, again, I'm, I'm just one person. I'm just one person who's very frugal, who's very financially responsible, not cheap. Thank you. Not cheap. Financially responsible and where my dollars and cents go, so... I'm not really interested in seeing a third fight between between Wilder and Fury. I would like to see Anthony Joshua get a chance to fight Tyson Fury. But if it's going to happen, it's going to happen. It's you know we, we take a look at heavyweight champions who's had their invincibility shattered throughout the time, throughout boxing history, throughout heavyweight boxing history. Most of the time, it doesn't end well. When that aura of invincibility is finally shattered, when it's finally taken down, when the when the man behind the curtain is finally revealed, and it's not the Wizard of Oz, it's just some two-bit actor that we don't even remember anymore, not Judy Garland or not anybody else, we realize that it doesn't end well for these guys as they go forward. Jack Dempsey was the baddest man on the planet by far, the, the, you know, the, the guy who no one wanted to fight, the guy that was beating up everybody, the guy that knocked George Carpier through the ropes and, and, and all those types of situations. Well, after losing to Gene Tunney in 1926 for the heavyweight champion, a guy who, for instance, outboxed him, outboxed the Manasseh Mahler for 10 or 12 rounds, they came back in 1927, a year later. Jack Dempsey got beat even more by Gene Tunney. That was the match of the long count, if you remember. And he retired a year later after one more fight. So once that era, once that aura of invincibility was gone from Jack Dempsey, never the same. Sonny Liston, back losing to uh, then Cassius Clay back in 1964. Sonny Liston was the baddest man on the planet. Sonny Liston was the baddest man who ever walked. People were fearing that Sonny Liston was going to hold the heavyweight champion. Sonny Liston, many people thought back in 1962, 1963, in the year 2020, would still be the heavyweight champion of the world. Not six feet down in the ground out here in uh, Las Vegas, but he lost to Ali. Never challenged for the title again after a rematch. Lost to Leotis Martin and then faded to obscurity where he died a few years later. George Foreman after losing to Ali, the the um, uh, Dallas Zaire, the Rumble in the Jungle. He fought six more times without fighting for the championship before losing to Jimmy Young in 1977, I believe, down there in Puerto Rico. And it took him 10 years to finally come back and do some things where he eventually 
won the heavyweight championship again, knocking out Michael Moore, I believe, in the 10th round. Mike Tyson, a guy, Mr. Invincible. No one was going to beat this guy. The biggest, baddest heavyweight of all time. All of those platitudes were thrown down on Iron Mike. At the time, he was bigger than Jordan. He was bigger than Bo Jackson. He was the most talked about. He was the most, you know, he, he was the man. He was the man. Well, he lost to Buster Douglas back in 1990. In fact, I remember when he lost to Buster Douglas. In fact, I I remember now that he lost to Buster Douglas because when he did, I didn't even know that he was fighting. I was playing junior college basketball out for San Diego Mesa. We had just played a basketball game, and I remember we were changing to get ready to go down to TJ's because it was a Saturday night, and someone was like, hey, did you know that Mike Tyson lost? I'm like, what? Mike Tyson? Mike Tyson's not even fighting. What are you talking about? Yeah, he, he lost over in Tokyo. He lost to some buster guy. I was like, oh, yeah. I totally forgot that he was fighting in Tokyo. He lost? For real? Well, shit, after going down to Peanuts and Beer and going up and down Old Revolutionary down to TJ's, we got to come back and watch the rematch of this or watch the uh, watch the replay of this because I can't believe Mike Tyson lost. So after that, he was never the same intimidating fighter again. Went to prison, lost to Holyfield twice. So again, that era of invincibility is gone. What is going to happen now with Deontay Wilder? He's getting, he's going to be 35 years old in October. I know that Tyson Fury learned a few more tricks in terms of his fighting style and in terms of his strategy going into this fight against Deontay Wilder. But damn, I don't know exactly what Deontay can do to change the outcome. I just don't know. I mean, again, money-wise, yeah, it's worth having a third fight. Maybe because of the lack of really true heavyweight contenders. Okay, maybe you go ahead and you have a third fight. The lack of true contender, heavyweight contenders from a United States perspective. We don't have the ability to have Ernie Shavers and Larry Holmes and Ken Norton and all these types of guys fighting. We don't. We don't have that. We don't have that luxury in the heavyweight division right now. A lot of the top-tier heavyweights are still European. So is it worth the, you know, is it, is it worth having a third fight between Fury and Wilder when, okay, let's take a look at this. When we talk about the importance of the heavyweight championship, what it means, I know it doesn't mean the same that it did when that was basically you, you were the man back in the day, I guess really when Tyson was holding the heavyweight crown. So I guess the argument can, can be made. Who makes that title baddest man on the planet? The belt or the man holding the belt? What makes that person the most powerful man in the world? Is it the person himself wearing the belt? Or is the belt making that person the most powerful man on the planet Earth? Ali made that title the most powerful man on the planet Earth. Joe Lewis, Rocky Marciano, all of those guys, all of those larger-than-life figures. Jack Johnson, um, um... Woo, Jack Dempsey, all of these guys. I mean, they were the baddest man on the planet. They really didn't need that belt. John L. Sullivan, they really didn't need that belt. That belt was just a symbol for them to explain why they were the baddest man on the planet. That belt didn't explain to others that that they were the baddest man on the planet. I digress. So, really, a third fight between Wilder and Fury. Okay, it'll be for a championship, but it won't have... It won't have the historical meaning and impact of an Ali Frazier 3. It won't have the savagery and action of a Mickey Ward versus Arturo Gali. It doesn't have the national impact or quality of fight 
let's say Eric Morales or a Marco Antonio Barrera going to have. It doesn't have two all-time great fighters like Sugar Ray Leonard or Roberto Duran fighting for the third time. So basically, what does this fight really bring? What is the what is the storyline other than can Fury continue his dominance? Can Wilder bounce back? What is it? We've already I've already told you that the championship itself has been devalued. So fighting for the heavyweight championship of the world doesn't mean the same thing in 2020 as it did back in 1995 when Evander Holyfield and and Buster Douglas got together, or when Douglas was the champion, or when Mike Tyson was the champion, or when Larry Holmes was the champion, when Michael Spinks for a short time was the champion. That that that. that that title doesn't mean as much. So just throwing it out there as a storyline for, yeah, they're fighting for the heavyweight champion of the world, championship of the world. That's not going to bring large numbers of people to plop down $80 for the pay-per-view cost of watching that fight. So what does it mean? That title, that storyline is not going to fill up Cowboy Stadium. That storyline is not going to put 60, 50, 40,000 people in the seats. That storyline is not going to have the whole world stop like Ali and Frazier did with those two fights. So what exactly are they fighting for? They're fighting for money and they're fighting for a title. And you know what? While it might not be enough for me in terms of my enthusiasm, I'll still watch the fight because I'm a boxing fan. That's right. I'm a boxing fan. I'll say it again. I'm a boxing fan. Stop laughing. I told you I'm a boxing fan. So I'll watch the fight. But in terms of the casual fighter, in terms of a guy who, for instance, would rather watch a, I don't know, who would rather watch a hockey game instead of a boxing match, instead of a championship fight, a guy who would rather watch some expansion team from two years ago would rather take his daughter to go see a, go see a, a knucklehead sport like that instead of watching a heavyweight championship fight. For someone like that, who is a lukewarm fight fan, even though on the surface he claims to be a huge boxing fan. <laughs> I'm sorry. But um, <laughs> for, for, those type of fi- for those types of fans, what is the storyline going to bring? What is the storyline going to, what are you going to bring to the table other than the championship fight to get someone interested who's not a hardcore fight fan like myself to uh, watch that fight? So. It'll be interesting. And again, for me, it'll be interesting to see exactly if Wilder can overcome this obstacle in terms of losing for the first time. Joe Lewis did, Ali did, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, but those guys weren't 35, 34 years old with a limited amount of experience and skill as far as being a a elite fighter that Deontay Wilder, that Deontay Wilder is. You know, I'm thinking myself, if I was running boxing, I mean, I'm not, but if I was running boxing, you know what I do? I think the next fight, I mean, I would surpass Wilder versus Fury. I would have, and I know in America, this ain't going to be the everyone's, hey, hey, this is the way to go. But for real, if we're speaking about what's best for the sport, I would have Tyson Fury fight Anthony Joshua. And I would have him fight in the summertime, be it in August or June, July, whatever. And I would have the fight in Wembley Stadium. The day is, uh, you know, we're, so we're talking about basically it's going to be March next week. So I'm thinking about maybe August, late July, August. I would have this fight at Wembley Stadium in front of like 90,000 people, you know, 100,000 people. That would basically be the biggest fight in, in boxing history over there. I mean, it would probably be one of the biggest, biggest sporting events of all time 
when we're speaking about Tyson Fury versus Anthony Joshua over there. It would probably be the biggest fight, boxing fight since, oh, I don't know, like when Ali fought Henry Cooper in front of 46,000 46, people back in 1966 at Arsenal Stadium. So it would be the biggest thing as far as sporting events is concerned in England since 1966 where they won the World Cup. So I would have that fight over there. Again, at Wembley Stadium in July, August, maybe even early September. And then I would have the winner of that fight fight Wilder at the end of the year or at the beginning of 2021, whether it be in Vegas or Madison Square Garden or Cowboy Stadium over in Dallas, you know, Madison Square Garden in New York City, one of the casino resorts in Las Vegas, out here in Las Vegas, be it the MGM Grand or the T-Mobile, something like that, the arena. So that's my that would be my plan. If I was running boxing, give Wilder some time off, give Wilder some time to rest. I don't know. Now, he, according to reports, he didn't suffer a, a broken eardrum or a ruptured eardrum or there's nothing major as far as injuries are concerned. But I think most of the injuries for Deontay Wilder are going to be mental. He would, if I was his handlers, really just to keep him sharp, just to let him, what if, just, get, just get him back to feeling the, Feeling the pleasure of knocking somebody the fuck out. I would I would have Deontay Wilder fight if, say for instance, if I was running boxing and they had Tyson Fury and Anthony Joshua fight, say for instance in August. I would have Deontay Wilder, if I was managing Deontay Wilder, I would have him fight sometime in September. And I would have him fight like a Tom Schwartz, or I would have him fight some easy tune-up guy. I would have him stay away from guys like Dillian White or Andy Andy Ruiz or Luis Ortiz, Luis Ortiz or Alexander Povechkin or or Alexander Usich. I would and anybody who's even close to a threat. I would stay away from if I was managing Deontay Wilder. But what I do is I'd have him fight someone like a Shondell Winters or a Tom Schwartz type of fighter. Get him back in the win column with an oppressive KO. Get his confidence back. Get his swagger back. Get his game back. Build him up as a legit contender. Especially, say, for instance, if Joshua wins, then we can have that fight that should have been, that many people were clamoring for before Tyson Fury kind of mixed everything up and messed everything up. What was the fight that people were wanting to see in the heavyweight division? It was Anthony Joshua versus Deontay Wilder. So if Anthony Joshua beats Tyson Fury, then technically Anthony Joshua is the man. If Deontay Wilder fights some tune-up guy in September and knocks him the fuck out within two rounds, then all of a sudden, what's the last image that we have? We don't have that last image of Deontay Wilder getting his ass kicked by Tyson Fury. All of a sudden now, we can go ahead and promote this fight by showing this devastating knockout that Deontay Wilder had not four years ago, not three years ago, but have it right there a couple of months ago. And we're speaking about starting to promote that fight, a Joshua versus Deontay Wilder fight. So I wouldn't go ahead, if I was running the sport of boxing, I wouldn't go ahead and I wouldn't have Deontay Wilder versus Tyson Fury 3, at least not yet. I would have, again, Fury, Joshua over in England in the summer, the winner at the end of the year or the beginning of next year, Fights Deontay Wilder, Wilder, who fights a nobody, a nobody heavyweight, knocks him the fuck out in a couple of rounds at the same time. So the so the avenues match in terms of their meaning to fight 
So it won't be a situation where, you know, the, the Wilder fought three months ago while Joshua or Fury fought six months ago or something like that. Have the winner of Fury, Joshua, again, fight Deontay Wilder at the beginning of 2021. Keep Deontay Wilder busy with fights, a tune-up fight to get his confidence back and get his swag back. That's exactly what I would be doing. But moving forward, again, I can see where both sides of the coin are coming from. I can see whether, whether it's heads or tails, whether it could be the correct call. But if I was running boxing, that's exactly the way I would do it. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things to discuss today in the world of sports. Man, oh man, oh man, some NBA news that I want to get into. Kyrie Irving for the Brooklyn Nets is done for the season. No, uh, According to the general manager, Sean Marks, Irving's going to undergo season-ending arthroscopic surgery on his right shoulder. Marks said the decision was made after Irving had visited with a specialist the past few days. The Brooklyn Nets currently are in seventh place in the Eastern Conference with a 26-29 and 29 record, 17-7 with him, or without him, in the lineup. In last season, they were 42-40, and 40, the number six seed in the playoffs. So, of course, now the question is, was the acquisition of Kyrie Irving worth it for the Brooklyn Nets? And, of course, the logical answer is, we don't know. Let's see what happens when Kevin Durant comes back. I said this, when the... Free agency, when free agents, uh, when Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving both went with the Brooklyn Nets, I said that even though this seems to be like a real hip de doo woo de doo I don't think the Brooklyn Nets with Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving and three other guys, whoever they're going to be, Paris LaVert or Dimwitty or whoever that's going to be, Joe Harris, whoever it's going to be for the Nets team, I don't think they're going to win a championship. I just don't. I really just don't think so. I mean, we have absolutely no idea. Now, there was some video of Kevin Durant being Kevin Durant in terms of shooting out in the gym, getting ready, and this was very this was very recently, so obviously he's progressing very well with his Achilles injury, but we, we don't know exactly how a 32-year-old Kevin Durant, after missing an entire year, is going to come back. Many people, when we talk about what a great acquisition that the Brooklyn Nets made by acquiring Kevin Durant. We're thinking about the Kevin Durant for the Oklahoma City Thunders, or we're maybe we're thinking about the Kevin Durant of the Golden State Warriors. We're thinking about that Kevin Durant, who is a top two, top three player in the NBA. I don't think Kevin Durant is ever going to be that player anymore. Now, I don't think Kevin Durant's going to fall off the map. I think when everything is all said and done, I think Kevin Durant's going to be anywhere between a top seven to top 12, 13 basketball player throughout the contract that he signed with the Brooklyn Nets. But that Kevin Durant, 
who could just dominate like dominate like the Kevin Durant did when he was with Golden State and when he was with the Oklahoma City Thunder. I think that Kevin Durant is long gone. And I don't think you're going to see Kevin Durant. There'll be glimpses of Kevin Durant being a top-tier guy. There'll be glimpses of the Kevin Durant that the Brooklyn Nets and the Brooklyn Nets organization and the Brooklyn Nets season ticket holders and the Brooklyn Nets fans were expecting to get. There'll be glimpses of that infrequently next season. But I'm 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 calling next year the 2020-21 season for the Brooklyn Nets. That's also kind of like a wash. Because I don't think Kevin Durant Kevin Durant is gonna to have to take at least at least I mean, hell, he ain't going to play 82 games anymore. We know that they're going to be cautious with him. But let's say, for instance, that he goes Kawhi Leonard in terms of his load management, and Kevin Durant plays 68, 65, 70 games. I think it's going to take him that much and more, uh, those that many games and more so to get back to the Kevin Durant that we all know and love. When you have a devastating injury like Kevin Durant did, or maybe like Gordon Haywood did, or someone who suffered a torn ACL, I mean, we it would be foolhardy and foolish and not fair to the player that's coming back from that injury to say, okay, you're back. Let's go back to the way you were before. The Gordon Hayward of Utah that came over and was, was expected to do the work, expected to be the man along with Kyrie Irving for the Boston Celtics, who then broke his ankle, a horrific ankle injury in his first game with the Boston Celtics, against the Cleveland Cavaliers, it took him an entire year to finally have the strength or finally get himself back to he could be a real contributing player, and he's still not the type of player that he was with the Utah Jazz or maybe what Bostonians or Boston Celtics fans were expecting him to be when he signed that free agent contract, where he signed that big money free agent contract. The same thing is going to be said with Kevin Durant. Kevin Durant's not going to come out the box averaging 27, 28 points a game and have the type of impact that many people are expecting him to have because of what they saw when he was playing with the Golden State Warriors. It's just not going to happen. Maybe in the second year, maybe he can get somewhat close to that. But Kevin Durant is not going to have that same impact that he had before. He's going to be load-managed. He's not going to be playing with the same type of talent that he had when he was with the Golden State Warriors. It's going to be taking some time for him to get adjusted and come back from an Achilles tear and try to work and live with the expectations that many people have for him, which are going to be realistic starting next season when he's when he starts playing. So no, the Brooklyn Nets under the under the way that they're put together right now, they're not going to be winning that championship. And Kyrie Irving as being the leader of a team, that's that's always been foolhardy. Kyrie Irving might be, could be, arguably is one of the most talented basketball players in the league. No, no, scratch that. Arguably, Kyrie Irving is the most talented basketball player in the league today. But Kyrie Irving has shown multiple times that he's not a leader. He's not a franchise player. He's not a guy that's going to lead the younger guys. He's, he's just not that guy. He's an awesome basketball player. He's a highly skilled basketball player when he's, not being injured, he's a potent basketball player, but Kyrie Irving is one of these guys where he needs to be situated with someone like a LeBron James or someone like a Giannis Adenokupo or maybe someone like a maybe someone of that ilk, maybe someone of that stature. And that, that could have been Kevin Durant, but I don't think Kevin Durant's going to be the same player that he was that the Brooklyn Nets need for him to be, for Kyrie Irving to be that, that, that Robin 
to Kevin Durant being Batman. Kyrie Irving might be the best Robin in the league in an ideal situation. We saw when he tried to be Batman, we saw what happened. He gets injury prone. He wrecks team chemistry. He's mercurial. He's unique. He's complex. He's difficult. He's confusing. He's confounding in terms of being a leader, in terms of being a, an employee that you work with, a, a teammate and all those things. He's, he's all those things in the bag of chips. But when you're on a veteran team like he was with the Cavaliers, when you had a Channing Fry and you had a Richard Jefferson and you had a LeBron James and you had these veterans who weren't thrown off, who weren't taken aback if Kyrie Irving didn't speak to him for a couple of days or if they passed by in a locker room and they said, good morning or how you doing or what's up Kyrie and he didn't say anything to them that they didn't take it personal. They didn't say, hey man, what the fuck's your problem? They didn't do anything like that. It was just like, fuck it, that's just Kyrie being Kyrie. I mean, that's what having those type of veterans, that's what happened. That, that was like, have, that's the type of environment that Kyrie Irving needs to be in. He needs to be in an environment that's full of veterans, an environment that has a super, stu- super duper star player, and they don't mind him just Kyrie being Kyrie. When you put Kyrie in that mix of guys such as Spencer Dinwiddie and, and, and all these other guys that surround him, Paris LaVert and Joe Harris and, and all these other guys, who I wouldn't say they're not wet behind the ears, young and impressionable, but they just don't have the experience in the NBA. Just they don't have the mileage of dealing with different franchises, dealing with different players, dealing with different situations. They're, they've almost been in a cocoon because when you're drafted by the Brooklyn Nets, I mean, they put you, it's almost like a Miami Heat-style regimen to where they put you in your player development and they develop you and they they, uh, they, they, they develop you both as a player and as a professional in the NBA. Well, when you're... When you throw Kyrie Irving in the mix, this guy, I mean, you don't know what the fuck to expect. You don't know what the fuck is going on with that. So it might take it, might take it back a little bit. So, you know, if I'm the Brooklyn Nets, it it would be nice to have that young core. And, you know, they brought in DeAndre Jordan as part of uh, the package deal along with Kyrie and KD. But still, man, it's it's a situation where I don't think that the, Brooklyn Nets are going to be winning a championship anytime soon. And that free agency of that year is going to be nice. But Kyrie Irving, I mean, it's, you know, I mean, what's the, what's the wow factor in the fact that he got injured again and he's going to be missing a significant amount of time? I mean, throughout his career, that's the majority of his time. That's been one of the main problems, along with his peculiar attitude. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host. Wendell Wall was so glad that you could be with us. Hey, did you hear the news? John Beeline no longer is the head coach of the Cleveland Cavaliers. What a shock. Are you serious? Now, he's going to remain with the franchise in an unspecified role. The Cavs will promote associate head coach J.B. Bickerstaff to replace Beeline. J.B. Bickerstaff is the son of, or yeah, the son of Bernie Bickerstaff, who who was with the then Washington Boulay organization back in the day. But according to The Athletic concerning John Beeline, one source described him as being a dictator whose style wasn't suited for the NBA. Gee, you think? <laughs> this clown wanted to practice on Christmas. Gee, you think this guy wasn't made out to be coaching uh, coaching adults? Beeline's tone toward the players when he was allegedly overly harping in film, ses- in film sessions, nitpicking fundamentals, and showing an inability to adapt to the NBA's offensive and defensive structures. And of course, we had a January 8th film session where he used the word thugs 
when describing the team play, he insisted, oops, my bad, that he meant to say slugs. I'm sorry. Slugs. Not thugs. I'm my bad. Gee, I said I meant to say boon, not coons. Ah, oh, my goodness gracious. Oh, man. I meant to say Mozilla, not gorillas. I'm just, Jesus, man. I'm so, I, how did that, how did that work? So he later apologized with several players. It didn't embrace his explanation. Gee, you think? <laughs> Again, these ain't 17, 18, 19, 20-year-old kids who are on scholarship. You know, sorry, sorry, man. I mean, you know, they were born at night, not last night. Oh, yeah, sorry, I meant to say slugs. Who says that anyway? You're playing like a bunch of slugs? I'm always, you're playing like shit. <laughs> you're playing like a bunch of slugs. No, I, I said... You guys are playing like a bunch of triggers, not a bunch of, oh, gee whiz, what the, where was I, did I say that for real? I guess I did, wow, gee whiz, okay, get out of here, get out of here, and in fact, how about this, one of the, some of the players, they thought that the explanation in terms of, I meant to say slugs instead of, instead of thugs, some thought that explanation was an insult to their intelligence, gee, you think? <laughs> I mean, me being an adult. You being an adult. I mean, we all work with people. We all work for somebody. We've all had to deal with that. Could you imagine someone coming up to you and, and saying that bullshit and be like, oh, I'm sorry. I said, I thought I said slugs. Oh, like, like a female. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought I said rich. I didn't mean bitch. I said, you women are playing like a bunch of riches. I just, and it came out bitches? Oh, my. Gee, how about, I'm that's not my character. I would. How would I know? Get out of here, man. Get out of here. So, Beeline was hired by Cleveland in May, okay? He quickly became miserable in his new job and was questioning his decision to leave Michigan by the time of the team's final two preseason games against Boston where they lost those two games by a combined 69 points. Man, I, I mean, and a lot of this has to go on the Cleveland Cavaliers. A lot of this has to go to the... the, the, the Main person to blame is Dan Gilbert, who signed off on this on this ridiculous hire. Colby Altman also shares some blame. Don John Beeline also shares some blame. I mean, John, did you actually talk to anybody in the league? I mean, I'm quite sure you have contacts. I'm quite sure you have friends and associates and people that you can reach out to and like four tops reach out because they'll be there to kind of help them with situations in terms of making this important decision. You're going to be leaving a a a college program that you built, that you did an excellent job. You're highly, highly regarded. You ain't going anywhere. You're 60-something years old. You can coach at Michigan until you feel like not coaching anymore and still make good money, still make really great retirement money. Yeah, I understand the challenge. Yeah, I understand the thought of, I wonder if I can really do this. I understand that, man, I don't want to be sitting on my deathbed thinking about the last days of my life and thinking about, man, you know what? I should have gave it a shot, even if I failed. I should have gave it a shot because I wouldn't know. I'll now have no idea how it would have turned out. So I understand all of the things about Beeline wanting to see if he could be a coach in the NBA. And he had he had interviewed, I think, with the Detroit Pistons before they hired Dwayne Casey a few years ago about becoming the head coach of that team. So this was something to where Beeline has been thinking about this for a while. But it's like, did you did you do any homework? Did you... I don't know what made you believe or what made you want to get into coaching in the NBA. 
Was it the thrill or was it the challenge of coaching the best players in the world, coaching at the highest league or, you know, coaching at the uppermost, coaching against the greatest coaches in the world? I mean, was it that? And if it was that, why did you do your homework? Did you really, once you got hired by the Cavaliers, did you do the do steps? Did you, did you contact anybody? Did you contact Billy Donovan? Did you contact Brad Stevens? Did you? Anybody in terms of, hey, you know, what's the best way to do this? I mean, I don't know. I don't know. But it just seemed that if by the time in May or by the time very quickly that preseason wasn't over and you made a mistake or you questioned your decision, what made you make that decision? Was it just, hey, you know what? I want to see what it's like to be an NBA coach and I don't give a damn who hires me. You're, I'm quite sure you're coaching in Michigan, so you live in Ann Arbor, or you live around that surrounding area. So Cleveland to Ann Arbor, you're not that's not a that's not a long jaunt, that's not a long travel deal for you. So I'm quite sure you don't have to uproot your family or anything like that. But I just don't, I didn't understand if he was going to be if so quickly that all of a sudden he felt that he made a mistake. Why, why did you accept the job to begin with? What promises were made to you? What what things were said to you that made you say, yeah, you know what, I want to take this job? Or again, were you like your, your, your fervor and your hunger to coach NBA basketball to see if you could do it was superseded over everything that was like, you know what, I don't give a damn what it is. I mean, you could, you could like cook me up to the Cleveland Cavaliers or the Detroit Pistons or the Washington Wizards or the LA Lakers or the damn near Sacramento Kings or that nut job as an owner. I don't care. I'll go ahead and... Vivek Ramadive, let me let me work for that guy. I just want to see what I can do in the NBA as the coach. I mean, was it was it that attitude? I don't know. I had no idea. But it always goes back to my explanation. It always goes back to my deal when it comes to college coaches in the NBA. You know, I think a college coach could make the transition. We've seen Brad Stevens do it. We've seen Billy Donovan do it. So there have been examples of college coaches who were successful in college go to the NBA, make the transition to the NBA and be successful. But for the most part, there's been a lot of those guys who have tried and haven't gotten the job done, whether it be John Calipari, who went from coaching UMass to the New Jersey Nets in 1966 and finished with a 1966, 1996 and finished with a 72 and 112 record. Fred Hoiberg, who went coaching at Iowa State and was hired by Chicago in 2015, and he went back to college coaching with Nebraska this year. Mike Montgomery in 2004, he went from Stanford to coaching the Golden State Warriors for two seasons in 2004 to 2006, was fired after accumulating a 68-96 and record. Boy, I remember watching that team play. Boy, did Baron Davis hate that guy. I mean, I don't know as far as personally is concerned, but as far as him coaching the team, boy, Baron Davis never gave that guy a chance. Man, it was almost like if Mike Montgomery called play number two, you could bet your bottom dollar without a holler that Baron Davis was going to go number one, three, five, or seven, anything but number two. He did not get along as far as from a coaching aspect, player coaching aspect with Mike Montgomery. That was a train wreck waiting to happen. And then you have an example, say, for instance, like Leonard Hamilton, who right now is doing a fantastic job at the University of Florida State. He was hired by the Washington Wizards back in 2000 after coaching at Miami. He was fired after one season at 1963. That was Michael Jordan's first year as president of basketball operations 
for DC and he wanted to come back. And since he wanted to come back and make that comeback, he wanted to be coached with a guy that he knew. So he hired Doug Collins, the coach. So because of that, Leonard Hamilton was fired. You remember that winter team with Mitch Richmond and Rod Strickland and Jawan Howard. And of course, how can anybody forget Cherokee Park? I mean, are you kidding me? How did the, how in the world did the Winters not win the championship with that, with that lineup, huh? So if I were a GM, if I were a GM, I GM in the morning, I GM in the evening time, all over this land. I GM danger, I GM warning, and I GM love between my brothers and my sisters, all over the NBA. Sorry, if I was the, I'm sorry, if I was a GM or president of basketball operations for an NBA team, I wouldn't consider a successful college coach from a historical basketball power. So I wouldn't hire myself a Mike Krzyzewski. I wouldn't hire myself a John Calipari or a Tom Izzo or a Jim Beheim back when Beheim was, you know, age-wise was, was able to be a viable NBA coaching prospect. But Krzyzewski, Beheim, Izzo, Bob Huggins, Calipari, Roy Williams, I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't go there. I, I would not go there. Because it's just a matter of, when you're in the NBA, man, it's so different from college. I think the acquisition, or I think the transition, because they're both almost like apples and oranges. You know what I mean? I mean, there's so many other aspects that are important in college that aren't, that aren't important at all in the NBA. And there's aspects in the NBA that are so important that don't have any type of relevance whatsoever as far as your success or failure is concerned from being a college coach to where, yeah, it is some difference. But if I had to make a wager, and let's just pick the best from both worlds, okay? I would I would gander, because you know how I love to gander, right? I mean, I gander in the morning, gander, okay, gotcha. I would gander that the Doc Rivers or the Greg Popoviches or the Rick Carlisle of the world could do a better job at say Duke or North Carolina or Kentucky or Michigan, Michigan State, Georgetown, I bet you those guys would do better as college coaches than if you put Mike Krzyzewski or Calipari or Tom Izzo or Roy Williams or even Bill Self with the New York Knicks or the Los Angeles Lakers or the Chicago Bulls or or the Boston Celtics or one of those types of organizations. I would just feel, and I'm not saying that those guys would be uttered failures when speaking about the college coaches, but I think as far as who would who would do a better job or who would be more successful, I think the pro coaches going to the college levels, if you're speaking about the best, the Carlisle, the Doc Rivers, the um, great Popoviches of the world, I think that they would be better or be have more success coaching in college than if the best coaches for college basketball who have been coaching for a long time, who are in the Hall of Fame because of their greatness as college coaches, went to the NBA and tried to resuscitate some of these story programs like the Chicago Bulls or, you know, they were only story. The Chicago Bulls are only storied because of Michael Jordan. So let me say uh, the Boston Celtics who are doing a great job right now with Brad Stevens, but, you know, we're talking about, say, for instance, the Los Angeles Lakers type of franchise, the New York Knicks. I mean, could Mike Krzyzewski or Roy Williams or John Calipari, could they turn around the New York Knicks? Shit, as long as Jim Dolan is the owner of the New York Knicks, I don't give a damn. You could bring in Greg Popovich, you could bring in Doc Rivers, you could bring in Rick Carlisle, you could bring in Red Auerbach, you could bring in 
You could bring in, I don't know, John Wooden in his prime. You could bring back any coach humanly possible that ever won a basketball game in college, pro, high school, AAU, middle school, elementary school, peewee league. It wouldn't make a difference as long as Jay Dolan, the Lord and the Lord and Savior himself, could be on the bench coaching the Knicks, and Jim Dolan would find a way to fuck that up. So maybe using that example is a bad one. But my my deal is is that I wouldn't have a coach who's been so successful as a college coach like Krzyzewski and Williams because how many times have they faced adversity as a basketball coach for real? I mean, for real. When you, What was the last time that there was a talent gap? Where What was the last time that Roy Williams or John Calipari or Tom Izzo or Coach K, what was the last time they came into a season to where they weren't going to have the, the 90% of the games that they were going to play. The very least, 90% of the games that they were going to play. How many of those games were they were going to be a team that wasn't going to have the overwhelming majority of talent on that team? How many games? What was the last time that Mike Krzyzewski or Roy Williams or John Calipari or any of those guys came into a basketball season where they said, you know what, if we play 30 games this season, at least 15 of those games, the talent is either going to be, the other team is either going to have more talent or comparable talent. When was the last time that happened? I don't think that's happened for Krzyzewski in 30 years. If you really think about it, yeah, there was that one year that he had the back injury and Duke didn't do that well. But other than that, and mainly that was because, again, of physical ailments that Krzyzewski had back in the day. You had to go back to maybe what when Ralph Sampson was playing before Coach K got that group that started off his coaching dynasty in terms of Johnny Dawkins and Gene. Well, Gene Banks was already there, but you're speaking about Johnny Dawkins, Tommy Amaker, Mark Ellery, Jay Billis. That those four that came in there. I mean, ever since Johnny Dawkins' junior senior year. Back in the early 80s, where they lost to Louisville and never nervous Parvis Ellison in the NBA, in the, uh, in the uh, college basketball championship with Denny Crum was coaching. Wasn't that the last time, probably, that, I mean, that started the whole thing in terms of Mike Krzyzewski always having the better talent? I shouldn't say always, but for the majority of, of teams that they play, that Coach Cage is going to have the better talent? I mean, when did that happen in the NBA? Mike Krzyzewski, again, has always had that advantage for decades. Roy Williams, even though he'll say it himself, he's doing an absolutely lousy job coaching North Carolina this year. You lose Cole Anthony, and that's the reason why you're 10-17. and 17. Really? Cole Anthony, you should have gone to Georgetown, man. Could you imagine what we could have done with you? I digress. But Roy Williams right now at 10-17, and 17. he said it himself. He has been lousy this year as a coach. He said it himself. After the loss at home against Clemson, hey man, if the athletic director wanted to fire me after this game, I wouldn't blame him. I'd fire me. I'd fire myself if I had the opportunity after after the coaching performance that I gave. And this is not to say that Roy Williams is slipping or he's overrated or anything or any nonsense like this. But man, it's been decades since Roy Williams, and I know a couple of years he made the NIT, and he hasn't always been the guy with the most talent in the country, but. With the exception of Duke in the ACC, for the majority of time, can you name another squad? Can you name another school? 
that has had more talent than North Carolina or Roy Williams? It doesn't happen. It doesn't happen when Jack Calipari has a bench full of four- and five-star recruits. It doesn't happen when Duke and North Carolina and Kentucky are getting number one recruits, when they're getting the top high school players in the country, even if it's just for one year. I mean, last season, heaven sakes alive, you had Cam Reddish, you had Zion Williamson, and you had R.J. Barrett go, what, in the top eight, top nine in the NBA draft? I mean, that's just talent. Every year you take a look. Calipari, number one recruiting class. Number two recruiting, recruiting class. Mike Krzyzewski, number one recruiting class. Number three recruiting class. Roy Williams, Tom Izzo, Jim Beheim, Bob Huggins, top 10, top 15 recruiting classes. Even with Syracuse slowing down just a little bit with Jim Beheim's uh, more uh, 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 age at the age that he's at right now, he still has the opportunity to go out and get some really good recruits. So, the, basically, what I'm trying to say is, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, if I'm an NBA squad, if I'm an NBA general manager or or an owner, and I'm say in a situation like, say for instance, say for instance like the Cleveland Cavaliers, where I just have this weird blend of veterans and young players, and we're not very good, and I don't have a franchise cornerstone, core, you know, franchise player to work with. I'm not New Orleans with Zion Williamson. I don't have that chip. Uh, you know, we don't know what's going to be happening in terms of R.J. Barrett. I don't have Luka Doncic on my team. I don't have John Morant on my team. I don't have the John Morant, uh, Jaron Jackson Jr. building blocks that I can work with like they do down in Memphis. I don't have anything like that. And I'm looking for a coach to try to turn that around. I don't go for Roy Williams. I don't go for Calipari. I don't go for Mike Krzyzewski. I just don't because, again, I have no idea how they're going to do when they're faced with a team who majority of the time this season isn't going to be able to overwhelm them with talent. And moving forward, there is no such thing as recruiting players. You know, I can't have, I can't hire Mike Krzyzewski to coach Cleveland and the next year he's going to go out and get myself Zion Williamson, John Morant, and, uh, and Luka Doncic. It doesn't happen. Unless you're with the Lakers in a couple of years. It doesn't happen. I can't go out and get Giannis Adenokupo. I don't have that type of I don't have that type of talent coming to my coming to my rescue like you do if you're in college basketball and you can go out and you you can recruit five or six five star recruits, top ten, top fifteen players like you can at Duke and North Carolina and Memphis with Penny Hardaway and and UCLA like Mickey Cronin is doing and these other places. You don't have that luxury in the NBA. So one of the reasons is the fact that you know what that's one of the reasons why when it comes down to it, I don't I wouldn't. Hitch myself, if I'm an NBA GM or owner, I wouldn't hitch myself to one of these legendary coaches to help turn my NBA team around. I just wouldn't do it. Now, say for instance, if Doc Rivers gets tired of coaching the LA Clippers and Mike Krzyzewski retires and he wants to maybe try his hand at Duke, I would consider that. I would consider hiring Doc Rivers to coach my Duke University program if I'm the AD rather than Coach K, coach my Los Angeles Clipper team as a owner or GM. I just wouldn't do it. There's been college coaches who I think would be a pretty good, who would have a really good chance to succeed in the NBA. You're speaking about a Jay Wright. You're speaking about a Tony Bennett over in, um, over in Virginia. I mean, Tony Bennett, Bennett. Yeah. I mean, I know his team's averages average, like, you know, 14 points a game on offense, but you're speaking about a guy who made winners out of Washington state. He won a title with Virginia, with Virginia. I mean, what in the name of 
Othello Wilson, Ralph Sampson, Rick Carlisle, and Terry Holland is going on here to where Tony Bennett can win a national championship at Virginia, who's in the ACC, and have Virginia be one of the best programs for a three or four year stretch where they were beating the Dukes, where they were beating the North Carolinas. Holy smokes. Yeah, I think Tony Bennett would make a very good candidate for an NBA coach. I mentioned Jay Wright, who's just 58 years old. He built a national championship contender. He didn't do it by getting four or five, four and five star recruits, four or five one and dunners. He's worked with the pros before with Team USA, so he knows that he's built relations uh, by coaching men. He's put Josh Hart and Ryan Archie Diacono and Jalen Brunson into the league. You have Calvin Sampson, who might be 64 years old, but he's won everywhere he's gone. I mean, he's won in Oklahoma. He's won in Indiana, Washington State. I mean, hell, that man even won at, Mo at Montana Tech. What the hell is a black man doing winning at Montana Tech, for heaven's sakes? What the hell is a black man back in the days when he was coaching Montana Tech, even surviving staying in a place like Montana Tech? But he's won there. He has NBA experience as an assistant coach with Kevin McHale in Houston, along with coaching positions in Milwaukee and San Antonio. So there's another guy who I would be calling if I needed to go ahead and get myself a college coach. Bill Self. I think Bill Self is the only guy, as far as being one of these coaches who's had a long time coaching the Blue Bloods. And Kansas, every year, is bringing in top-tier recruits and bringing in top talent. And I think Bill Self is the only guy from that group of, you know, really great college coaches who I just mentioned before, the mega superstars of college coaches who I think would have a chance to make it in the NBA because Bill's got that swag to him. Bill's got that Bill's got that confidence to him. Coach Self had the confidence and swag to him, but I don't think it would rub players the wrong way. And I think that he would also have the personality and he's intelligent enough to know that it's not his show. And there's been speculation that he'll become the head coach of the San Antonio Spurs when Greg Popovich retires, but I don't know about that, but it just seems like I, I like I like um, Bill Self in that situation. I remember one time, this had to be, shoot, what, about six, seven years ago, somewhere around there, I always try to go to the AAU basketball tournament that's out here during the summer, uh, see what players Georgetown's are, Georgetown is recruiting, take a look at them up close. And these guys play all over the area. They play at Bishop Gorman, they play in Foothill, they play at Henderson, they, they, play, they play all over the place. So I went to the main gym one day in the summer in July and was taking a look at the guys running up and down the court over at the, one of the better gyms in the Las Vegas Clark County area. And Lorenzo Romar was there who was coaching at the time. And they had some other big time coaches who were there. Man, as soon as Bill Self walked into that gym, and I think this was the time, I think this was the time that he just, yeah, because I mentioned it before, who, the guy who I was with. He had just won that national championship. He beat Calipari of Memphis at the time with uh, Chalmers, Mario Chalmers hitting that shot. He walked into that gymnasium, and it was just like all the other coaches were just like, there goes the man. Hell yeah, there's the man. I mean, it was like, yeah, you had the other coaches. What's up? How you doing? This, that, and the other. But as soon as Bill Self walked in, it was just like, there's the man. That is the fucking man right there. What's up, man? And Bill came in like a king on the throne, man. Bill was like, what's up? How you doing? This, that, you know? And it was just like, I was looking at that guy, and I was like, man, I, I can see why this guy gets, I can see why this guy gets recruits. 
And there's something about this guy. There's a certain swag. There's a certain confidence. I mean, he wasn't walking in like George Jefferson moving up on the east side. He didn't have that type of bounce to his ounce. But it was just like he just walked in, and it was like you knew that he knew that his shit didn't stink, but he knew that it stunk. You know what I'm saying? I mean, he had that kind of aura about him. Like, yeah, you know what? I'm the man. I know that. But I ain't going to lord over Yeah, I'm not going to be sitting up there talking about, hey, where's my robe? And, you know, where's the flower petals? being thrown at my feet and all that kind of nonsense. You ain't bowing yet, uh, fellas, what's up with you? He didn't have that type of arrogance to him, but there was just this swag. There was just this coolness. There was just this confidence that he had about him where it was just like, yeah, man, I can see why these, I can see why these players not only play for the guy, but love the guy in terms of him being their college coach. So Bill Self is another guy who I can see um, being a head coach, making that transition from the college coach to the NBA. Because if I had to transition, I transition in the morning. Hey, transition in the evening time. Come on, y'all. All over this land. I transition danger. I transition warning, y'all. And I tra- transition love between my brothers and my sisters. All over this land. Sam Cook at the Copa for Tops Live. Some really good shit. Yeah, some really good shit. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. A lot of things going down in the world of sports. History lesson, everybody. All right, everybody, have a seat, would you please? Thank you very much. Let me go ahead and get this started. I appreciate you taking the time listening to this podcast. Very much appreciate it. Today, we're going to be discussing an important date. I want you to write this down, get out your pen and paper. I'll wait. Wait a little bit more. All right. February 25th, 1964. I just want you to take a moment today. I don't know. I'm going to probably have this come out. It's going to be in the early afternoon Pacific Standard Time, Las Vegas time. So which means maybe you'll be listening to this in the evening, maybe at night, maybe even tomorrow morning. Whenever you listen to it, though, I want you to take a moment and think about the date, February 25th. And I want you to celebrate the impact this date had, not just on the world of sports, but also on society at large. And I want you to think about it, especially if you're a person of color. I want you to think about the importance of this date and what it meant to you and what it means to you and how important it is that the event took place on this day and how strong and how powerful and how important it was. February 25th is one of the most important days of the past 60 years in the world that we live in. And one of the most important days in sports history. Some of the, we take a look at some of the most important dates in U.S. history over the past 60 years. Of course, we have November 22nd, 1963, the assassination of President John Kennedy, the chicken who came home to roost. Thank you, Malcolm. February, uh, August 28th, 1963, Martin Luther King gave his I Have a Dream speech during the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. He delivered 
That speech to over 250,000 civil rights supporters from the steps of the Lincoln Memorial on in Washington, D.C. Some called it the March on Washington. Others called it the Farce on Washington. Whatever. July 2nd, 1964, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, a landmark civil rights act and labor law that outlaws discrimination based on race, color, religion, sex, or national origin. August 8th, 1974, Richard Nixon resigns as president of the United States. March 30th, 1981, Ronald Reagan, the 40th president of the United States, was shot and wounded by John Hickley Jr. in Washington, D.C. The L.A. riots of April 29th, 1992, riots after a trial jury acquitted four officers of the LAPD for usage of excessive force in the arrest of beat and beating of Rodney King, which had been videotaped and widely viewed on TV broadcast. I remember... At the time, I was in the Bay Area. I was in Hayward, California, San Francisco, California, uh, Oakland, California, that area. And I remember sitting there with my favorite Puerto Rican, Chris Ortiz, and we were watching the, we were watching what was going down. And it was just like, man, is there, is there going to ever be a time in this life where we're truly going to be free? I mean, after the beatdown that they had, Simi Valley, an all-white jury acquitted those guys. We just looked at each other and we just said, yeah, you know, Tearing up the neighborhoods, not good, not good. But damn, I can understand their anger. I can understand their frustration because that shit didn't happen to me. I don't live in Los Angeles. I live out here in the Bay Area. The only Southern California area I lived in was San Diego. I had no interest of living in L.A. I had no interest in living of living in L.A. So I wasn't privy. I didn't have the experience of being of being harassed and being treated like second-class citizens, like those folks did with the LAPD for, in some instances, decades. So I understand their anger, and I understand their frustration. I also understood that if one of those guys said, wait a minute, guys, why are we tearing up our neighborhood? Let's go ahead and let's go up to Simi Valley, and let's go up to Sherman Oaks, and let's go up to the area where this atrocity took place, where this verdict took place, and tear that place up to shreds. Let's see how quickly the National Guard, let's see how quickly George Bush would have gotten them guards, would have gotten the National Guards out there to stop that. When they were tearing up their own neighborhoods, there was nobody around. You know, George Bush, nobody called, nobody in there to figure out what the hell was going on to try to stop them from destroying their own neighborhoods. But let them go to another neighborhood. Let them go to a more wider neighborhood. And let's see how quickly George, put, George Bush would have put a stop to that and how many lives would have been lost, how many black men and women and children's lives would have been lost if, they would have decided, why are we tearing up our own neighborhoods? That you know, Compton and East LA and all them places, they didn't do anything to us. Inglewood, that didn't, they, that's not where that that's not where our problem lies. They're not the root of the evil and the problem that we have. That verdict, those people gave that decision in Simi Valley. Those people are from Sherman Oaks. Those people don't know anything about what we go through down here. They don't know about the strife and the pain and the everyday that's being afflicted upon us by this corrupt, by this racist, by this inept police force in Los Angeles. Let's go up there and show them. Let's go up there and take our anger out on them, on their decision. Let's see how quickly George Bush would have put a stop to that. So basically, those were the emotions that me and and me and Ortiz and then Mark Lawrence and then Marvin Prather and some others were feeling when we were in our apartment glued to the television watching that stuff go down. So it was very riveting, something in the moment in time 
that I'll never forget. So the reason why I'm bringing up all of those important dates in history over the last 60 years, because those are the dates that shaped us. Those are the dates that played a role in what we are now. Those are the stepping stones. Those are the avenues that are being built to where we are today as a society, where we are as a nation, the way that we treat each other, the way that we go about our everyday, whether it be the good, the bad, the indifference, the positive, the negatives, the accomplishments, the failures, all of those things can be baked in that foundation over the past 50, over the past 60 years, starting with, if you want us to have the starting point, or the 1963 assassination of President Kennedy, that that horrendous act, that situation plays a role in what we do in our everyday. The I Have a Dream speech, August 28, 1963, that plays a role in what we do every day. July 2nd, 1964, the Civil Rights Act, that plays a role in what we're doing today as a society. August 8, 1974, that plays a role in terms of what we're dealing with today, our, our political climate that's going on today. We, there's evidence of that having, that date having an impact and the meaning of what that date brought in terms of Richard Nixon resigning. The assassination attempt, March 30th, 1981, the LA riots, 1992, April 20th, all of these things play a role. So when we mention dates, when we mention time periods, when we mention all of these things, life would never be the same if John F. Kennedy of November 22nd, 1963 didn't have any meaning because truly the people in Dallas, Texas truly did love the president. All of the folks, not just one, or if you want to, a mob, or if you want to, certain fractions of the government, if they all loved John F. Kennedy in 19, in November 22nd, never would have happened, our lives would have been different. If Martin Luther King didn't give that I have a dream speech on August 28th in 1963, our lives would be different right now. July 2nd, 1964, the Civil Rights Act, I can guarantee you that for millions upon millions of black and brown people in, in this country, it would be a lot different. It would be a lot worse. It would be a lot harder if those things didn't happen. Uh, March 30th, April 29th, all of these dates that I'm mentioning play a role, which is, again, why we should stop and think about today, February 25th. Why today? We need to stop. We need to think. We need to genuflect. And we need to give thanks. And we need to uh, say, phew, thank you for it very much. Because it was one of the greatest days over the past 60 years in this country and in this world. What am I talking about? I'll tell you what I'm talking about. February 25th, 1964, which was a Tuesday back then, Muhammad Ali was introduced to us. Muhammad Ali basically was born. February 25th, 1964, some guy named Cassius Clay beat the unbeatable, the indestructible, the intimidating, the big ugly bear, Sonny Liston, to become the heavyweight champion of the world. The next day, after becoming the heavyweight champion of the world, even that night, after becoming the heavyweight champion of the world, everything was then put into motion for the birth of Muhammad Ali. And with the birth of Muhammad Ali, this society all of a sudden became a lot better. And for millions upon millions of people, of minority and black and brown descent, all of a sudden this world changed and it changed for the better and it changed forever because of that date, because of what happened on that date, because of the accomplishment that happened on that date, the impact that it had, 
no other sporting event in this country, in this world over the past 50, 60 years since then has had the impact that it has on this society and this world since then. You can bring them all up. You can bring up the miracle on ice that we just celebrated on February, on February 22nd, where the USA beat the Soviet Union 4-3 at the 1980 Winter Olympics. You can talk about April 15th, 1947, where Jackie Robinson became the first black man to play in Major League Baseball. You can talk about April 8th, 1974, where Hank Aaron hit his 715th home run to break Babe Ruth's record, home run record of 714. You can talk about September 20th, 1973, the Battle of the Sexes, Billie Jean King beating Bobby Riggs to really put a statement on the women's movement and the Me Too movement and all these other women's groups that has been, that have been, that have been given rise and given birth for the betterment of this country has its roots, has its starting point. September 20th, 1973 of the, of what Billie Jean King did to move along for the rights of women and such. None of those dates in sports history has had the impact, has had such a large impact of Tuesday, February 25th, 1964, Cassius Clay winning the heavyweight championship over Sonny Liston. The man, speaking of Ali, call him Cassius Clay, mama named him Clay, I'm going to call him Clay. Muhammad was a 7-1 underdog. 7-1 underdog stopped him in the seventh round. The doctor stopped the fight. I didn't stop it. The doctor stopped the fight. Basically, Sonny gave up. He had a bumped shoulder, and he was like, I'm getting my ass kicked. Fuck this. I ain't going on anymore. Going into the fight, you see, because if you're a historian, or you don't know, or you don't care, or you're just from the outside looking in, or you really haven't studied it like I have, going into the fight, from everything that I've read, everything that I've seen, all the documentaries and such, going into the fight, Liston was at that time considered the most menacing, indestructible, unbeatable force in the heavyweight boxing history. He was more menacing, he was more devastating, he was more indestructible than Jack Dempsey, than Joe Lewis, than Marky Marciano. He was stronger, bigger, meaner, tougher, nastier, angrier, more unbeatable than any of those guys. And here you have this guy, Cassius Clay, who was considered an underdeveloped, undersized, inexperienced loudmouth, some clown who would get destroyed in less than two rounds. It was a matter of Sonny Liston for years, even before he became the heavyweight champion. Sonny Liston was a guy who nobody wanted to fight because he came out of prison in St. Louis, then came into the boxing under Johnny Vitalo and the mob, and he came up and he was just beating the shit out of everybody. Guys who people thought were tough guys. He got into the ring with Sonny Liston, and as Sonny Liston stared at him, the guys would quiver. The guys would shake. The guy would be scared. The guys would look like Michael Spinks when Mike Tyson put the snake eye on him. I mean, it was one of those type of deals. I mean, Sonny Liston was a bad, bad, bad man. And a lot of times he had people beat before the opening bell started because they knew that once that bell rang, and Liston put that jab on their asses, then it was all over. That they were going to get hurt, and they were going to get hurt real bad. So because of Liston's background, because he was illiterate, because he was a guy who didn't play nicies with the press, because he was a guy who was controlled by the mob, because basically everybody was scared of him, because of the times that they were in, beginning of the civil rights movements, black folks were known as second-class citizens at the time, because Sonny Liston was this inarticulate, brute, mean, scowling, 
angry, intimidating, don't want to see him in a dark alley, shit, I wouldn't want to see that guy in any alley, any street, any pool, any place, anywhere, anytime, day, night, morning, new, whatever, because Sonny Liston had that aura about him, because Sonny Liston had that aura of invincibility about him, because basically, because Sonny Liston scared the shit out of white people, that there was no way that the boxing establishment was going to let this guy become the heavyweight champion of the world. No fucking way. Especially when you had yourself a good Negro in Floyd Patterson. Nice guy, demure, kind of a throwback to Joe Lewis where he wasn't a braggart. He wasn't the guy who said much. He wasn't loud. He wasn't boisterous. He wasn't obnoxious. He was, he was a good Negro. He was a good little boy. You told him to go sit in the corner, he sat in the corner. You told him to jump, he would say how whole, how high. He was a very he was very obedient to white people. He wanted to please white people. And I'm not saying that I'm not saying that Floyd Patterson was a modern day Ben Carson or one of those Sambos. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying was because of the world that he was living in, I guess Floyd Patterson's MO or Floyd Patterson's philosophy was, hey, to get along, I gotta get along. So if I have to sit there and and, and, and let Whitey tell me what's going on, then I guess that's what I'm going to have to do. The man bought a house in Yonkers when he became the heavyweight champion. The folks in that area started a petition to get him out of there, destroyed his house, ruined his property, and told him to move. And Floyd Patterson had to move. So even the good Negro, even the obedient Negro, even a good little Negro who wasn't going to cause any types of trouble, being the heavyweight champion of the world for white folks at that time, even that wasn't good enough for them to have him live in their neighborhoods. So he was the heavyweight champion, but everybody knew that if Sonny Liston got in there in the ring with the guy, he would destroy him. I mean, there was just no doubt about it. I mean, Customato, who later fought, later, uh, excuse me, managed Mike Tyson, he would not let Floyd Patterson fight Sonny Liston. And he told him straight out, if you fight Sonny Liston, you will lose. You have no chance of beating Sonny Liston. So because of that, we are going to do a smear campaign on Sonny Liston to convince the public that there is no way, no how, this man should be having the privilege of fighting for the heavyweight championship. We're going to bring up the fact that he spent time in prison. We're going to bring up his poor background. We're going to bring up his illiteracy. We're going to bring up the fact that he's with the mob. We're going to bring up the fact that he's black. I mean, he's super black. I mean, he's medium black. I mean, he's every white person's nightmare black. I mean, he ain't damn second-class citizen black. He ain't, he's fucking ain't even a citizen blank. Even a citizen black. That's how bad we're going to go on, go in on this guy because Customato wanted the heavyweight championship belt for himself with his guy, and he knew that as soon as Sonny Liston would be able to fight for that belt, that he would destroy and kill his golden goose, Floyd Patterson. Well, Floyd said, look, man, I'm sorry, fuck you. Finally going to get a backbone here. Floyd come in. Uh, Sonny come in. Let's go ahead and have this fight. Sonny said, cool, I'll go ahead and take your title and knock the ass out in one round, which he did to gain the heavyweight championship of the world. The rematch, same same thing out there in Chicago. Well, no, it was, it was uh, Las Vegas. The first fight was in Chicago. Floyd got knocked out in one round. The rematch a couple of months later was in Las Vegas, I think, and Liston killed him again in one round. So it was a situation where people thought, man, this guy, there ain't nobody beating this guy. This guy just beat the best heavyweight out there and beat the living shit out of him in one round. Wasn't even close. There's nobody, nobody on the horizon 
that's going to be able to beat this guy. Not Cleveland Williams, not Ernie, Ernie Terrell, not Zora Foley, nobody. Absolutely nobody. But they were all just counting some guy named Cassius Clay. Now, Clay was loud. Clay was boisterous. Clay was a clown. He did all those things. But it was a situation where this guy has absolutely no fucking chance against Sonny Liston. None. Zero. Zip. I mean, before the Liston fight, Ali had been knocked down by some journeyman named Sonny Banks early in his career. In his two previous fights, he barely won a controversial decision against some guy named Doug Jones. Who? Doug Jones. And then against Henry Cooper, he was knocked down by a left hook at the end of the fourth round, and he was clearly out on his feet speaking about Ali. But Angelo Dundee stalled for time for Clay to recover and came back and won. So, of course, you're taking a look at this. You're saying, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. So you're going to try to tell me that this guy, Cassius Clay, who barely beat some no-name named Doug Jones, who got knocked down by some other no-name named Sonny Banks, and then the only reason why he won against some journeyman named Henry Cooper was because of some uh, shenanigans that Angelo Dundee did to kind of save his boy because he was out on his feet. So this guy who's having all of these problems against these no-name journeyman journey, Sonny Liston would destroy in 15 seconds? This guy, Clay, is having problems beating these guys? And he's supposed to be a viable candidate for the heavyweight championship against the unbeatable, menacing Sonny Liston? Man, are you fucking out of your mind? <laughs> Liston's going to kill this guy. <laughs> so it was a situation. And, hey, you know what? Ali, Clay at the time, he did the psychological thing. He was like, the only way I can kind of beat this guy, he did what Conor McGregor did to Jose Aldo. Jose Aldo, I'm basically going to get in this guy's head. I'm basically going to let this guy think that I'm crazy. That's basically what I'm going to think I'm going to do. Great story about that. They were in Vegas. And Sonny Liston comes in because at the time going to the fight, Sonny had moved from Denver to Las Vegas over on Ottawa Drive. Been over there as a memorial. Great looking place. Great looking house. So, Liston was walked into the casino. And look who he sees playing craps over in one of the tables. Cassius Clay. Okay. So, Liston kind of walks over. And, you know, Clay gets up, starts running it down. Blah, 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 blah. Sonny Liston slaps him across the, across the face. Ow! <laughs> Clay takes it, looks at him and goes, what do you do that for? And Liston in his mean, menacing uh, voice says, because you too fucking fresh turned around and walked away. Turned, turned his back on him and walked out. Ali didn't do anything. Took that slap across the face and didn't do anything. Liston kind of looked at the guy until he was with him. He said, I got the punk's heart. I got the punk's heart. There was another time. This is pretty good. There's another time, very articulate, by the way, of Sonny Liston, that Clay was running his mouth, and he was just driving him nuts. Just, you know, I mean, Liston had, had enough of his bullshit and his, I'm the greatest, and you ugly, and you're a big, ugly bear, and you're a chump. You can't laugh with me. I'm the greatest, and blah, 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 blah. Liston had, had enough. He's had enough of this bullshit. So he walked over to Clay. You know, at one of these times where, you know, he was running his mouth and you win shit and this, that, the other. And he looked at him and he said, look here, you nigger faggot. 
I'm sick and tired of you talking. You say that shit one more time, I'm going to rip your tongue out your throat and shove it up your ass. <laughs> Clay was like, I got it. See you later. <laughs> okay, I've, I've gotten to that line for today. I'm going to go away. I'll be back. But I'm, uh, okay, I'm not going to cross that line. I got you loud and clear. I ain't going to stop. But at least for today, I'm going to leave you alone. Gotcha. You ain't, you ain't in the mood to be playing today. I, <laughs> I gotcha. Look here, you nigger faggot. If you keep talking, enough is enough. If you keep talking, I'm going to rip your tongue out your mouth and shove it up your ass. <laughs> and imagine Sonny Liston saying that to you. It's like, okay, I got you. No problem. <laughs> no problem. I'm done for today. So basically what all of this was trying to say is that nobody, I mean nobody, this wasn't a black and white thing. This was nobody thought that Muhammad Ali or at the time Cassius Clay had a chance. No one even knew Muhammad Ali. Nobody even knew what that was all about. But Muhammad Ali, Mo, Mo, what the hell is that? What the hell are you talking about? No one even knew that name. So going into February 25th, 1964, Cassius Clay in Miami, Florida, 7-1 underdog, 49, was it 46, out of 46 ringside uh, sports writers at ringside, out of the 46 uh, sports writers at ringside, 43 had picked pick listed the win by a knockout in either rounds one or two. Robert Lipsight, who was covering the fight at the time, I think for a paper in the New York Times Post, I forget. The editor told him, look, when you get down to Florida, the only thing that you need to do is find the fastest route from the arena to the hospital. Because, because the fight ain't going to last. Liston's going to kill the guy. And basically, you need to find the route to get from the arena to the hospital because that's where your main reporting is going to be. The fight itself, I mean, this wasn't like your typical, oh my goodness, this is a great heavy. This wasn't Lewis Schmeling too, okay? This wasn't a blockbuster. This wasn't the high-hyped, you know, affairs and boxing matches that would become of Ali. This wasn't the fight of the century. This wasn't the rumble in the jungle. This wasn't the thrill in Manila. This was something to where no one really gave a shit about. Not many people covered the fight. Not many newspapers sent anybody down there to the fight to cover it. Because they all felt that Sonny Liston was going to kill this guy within one round, and then Cassius Clay would go back to go back to being a nobody, or just go back to being anonymous, and Liston's reign of terror would continue in the heavyweight division. Again, you got to remember, 1964, the heavyweight champion of the world was considered the most powerful man on the planet, and for white folks out there to have the most powerful man on the planet be Sonny Liston. Is like black folks having this piece of shit, asshole, racist, no good, inept, corrupt piece of garbage that we have in the White House right now times 100. So that's how bad for white people having Sonny Liston represent them as the most powerful man on the planet. That's the same type of that's the same similar type of feeling that white folks had considering uh, Liston's uh, situation. So, you know, that was that was the deal, man. That was the deal. So I'm thinking to myself. So I thought about this, and the great thing about this was the only people who believed that Ali or Clay could win at that time, there was one person, Malcolm X. Malcolm X had tutored, had mentored Ali at the time. He, he, Ali saw how Malcolm spoke with, or spoke with intelligence, spoke with articulation, told the white man where it was and where to go, and what he can do with this country if he's going to be continuing to discriminate and to put us in danger and to sick his dogs on us and to have us being lynched 
and to have us being murdered and not to give us the opportunities. So a lot of the things that we're still experiencing today, not on the same level, but some of the things that we're still dealing with as black, black and brown people being treated as second class citizens and not having the privilege that white folks have in this country. Malcolm would tell them under no uncertain terms where they can go and what they can do with their with their wonderful society that he has. And Ali saw that. He saw that. He was like, man, this guy is awesome. And those guys became like brothers. It was like Malcolm was Clay's older brother and Malcolm tutored him. Malcolm was the one who said, you know what, because of Allah, Malcolm was the one who introduced Clay to the nation of Islam for the good or bad of it. But he introduced him in a sense to Islam. He was the guy that said that Allah is going to, it has, it has it ordained on you that you were going to win this fight tonight. And Ali believed it. He actually believed it. So you're thinking to yourself, if Cassius Clay still would have been Cassius Clay the Catholic who didn't meet Malcolm X, would he have been as confident going into that ring? Would he have had a chance or would he have done like Floyd Patterson did or what Ernie Terrell did or what other fighters who had faced Sonny Liston and the minute that Liston put that stare on him that Ali or at the time Cassius Clay would have slumped, would have not been able to rise to the occasion if for years before that, he hadn't been tutored. He hadn't been trained. He hadn't been taught. He hadn't been educated. He hadn't been shaped as a man by the great, legendary, fantastic, my hero, Malcolm X. So by the time February 25th, 1964, today's date 56 years ago, came around, Ali, then Clay, the man was ready. He says, I'm going to win. I know everybody says I'm going to get my ass kicked. I know everybody says I have no chance. I know everybody's laughing at me. Every, everybody thinks I'm a clown. Everybody, I, I know all this. I hear all this. I ain't dumb. I ain't stupid. But Malcolm told me because of Allah. Malcolm said that Allah told me that Clay was going to win this fight. And I believed it. So I came in there, not, I, I came in there thinking, expecting to win the fight. And that's exactly what he did. And he didn't win by some cheap decision. He won in devastating, dominating facts, uh, fashion. And the funny thing is, it's not really funny, but the fact was that cult, that gang called the Nation of Islam, those guys had absolutely no interest whatsoever as introducing Cassius Clay as their main man. None whatsoever, because just like everybody else, they thought, that this guy was loud, he's a clown, and he's braggadocious, he was a dope, he was a, you know, just a loudmouth buffoon who Liston was going to destroy in two rounds, so why in the world are we going to bring this guy into our, our, our cult? Oh, I'm sorry, our nation. Why are we going to introduce this guy? Why are we going to give this guy the name Muhammad Ali? Why are we going to present him as a, as a Muslim? when everybody knows he's going to get his ass kicked and no one's going to give a damn about him anymore. It was only until after he beat Sonny Liston that Elijah Poole, Elijah Muhammad, ain't nothing honorable about that guy unless you like a guy who likes to sleep around with women and father children by different women. That, that buffoon, that phony, that charlatan, as Malcolm correctly stated, before the nation with the help of others killed him, and that was February 21st, 1964, by the way. That anniversary just passed. But it wasn't until he beat Sonny Liston and became the heavyweight champion of the world that Elijah Muhammad you know, named him Muhammad Ali. 
named him. I mean, Cassius didn't even have a chance to pick out his own name. His name was given to him by the supposed leader, by the by the fraud known as Elijah Muhammad. So we're talking about, and again, that started the that started what we know as of today, Muhammad Ali, and that was all started in 19, uh, 1964, February twenty fifth today, fifty six years ago. Before that night. On uh, February 24th, 1964, he was known as Cassius Clay. He was a clown, a curiosity, something that's new and fresh and putting some entertainment into the sports world. Sure, he was a guy who thought could save the game of boxing because of his personality and because he made everybody laugh. I mean, he was the silly Negro. He was the, he was the funny Negro. He's the guy that made us laugh, you know, the clown Negro. All of a sudden, that night when he won the heavyweight championship of the world, and then the next day he comes out and tells reporters that don't call me Cassius Clay no more. Cassius is no longer my, my real name. It's no longer my name. That's a slave name. My name is Muhammad Ali. Damn right, Muhammad Ali. I'll say it one more time. Muhammad Ali. That's all of a sudden when white folks said, oh, shit. Well, this guy ain't no damn clown anymore. All of a sudden, thanks to Malcolm X, and thanks to that win over Sonny Liston, he became a world figure. He became a symbol of strength, a power, of influence. Now, under the tutelage of the Nation of Islam, now under the tutelage of Muhammad, excuse me, of Malcolm X, now all of a sudden, Muhammad can go to all these other Arab countries and talk about the atrocities and talk about the the way that the United States, the way that America are treating the 22 million Afro-Americans that are living in this country. Now, all of a sudden, they have someone with some power. Now, black folks have some power with some clout. You think J. Edgar Hoover wasn't concerned about that? You don't think the white establishment, the white government, white folks weren't concerned about that? The fact that now, because he has that title, because now this guy whose name is Muhammad, Muhammad Ali from this gang, this Nation of Islam gang who the FBI has been following, has been wiretapping, has been keeping an eye on all of a sudden now. They have the heavyweight champion of the world. They have the most powerful man in the world. And he now has the ability to go to Asia. He has the ability to go to Africa. He has the ability to go to all the continents of the world and talk about how this country, how America is treating the 22 million Afro-Americans on a daily basis, talk about the lynchings, talk about the bombings, talking about the murders, talking about the inequalities, talking about the second-class citizenship. Uh-oh, we have ourselves a real problem. And because of the foundation that was set by the great Malcolm X, and because of Ali's fortitude and his inner strength and his beliefs that he wasn't going to back down, he wasn't going to kowtow. He wasn't going to use his, his title, to use his influence, to use his power for selfish reasons. Yeah, the bank account got bigger. Yeah, the amount of girls throwing himself at him was a lot more. Yeah, he could get a lot more houses. Yeah, he could get a lot more things. But he also realized, thanks to Malcolm, that I could use this championship. I could use my stature. I could use my pedestal to spread what's going on in the world concerning the United States. And I can take these atrocities that the, the United States are doing to us 22 million Afro-American brothers and sisters, and I can take it across the world and I can tell them exactly what's going down. Oh, shit. Oh, white folks did not like that at all, man. Did not like that at all. So 
I always think about, and that started the everything, and that started everything. And that blended in with the civil rights movement. That blended in with Martin Luther King. That blended in with Rosa Parks. That blended in with Medgar Edwards. That bl blended in with Bill Russell and Jim Brown and Arthur Ashe and being proud and being black and Motown and Stax and Stan Cook and, and every, everybody else, everything else that helped move this revolution, that helped move the society, that helped move these people to where we are now. Still far away from where we need to be. Some of it's our fault. A lot of it's on the other folks' fault. A lot of it's our society's fault, but we're moving. And who helped move us a lot? Who helped move us the most? Who was the front and center guy? Even more than Malcolm? Even more than Martin? Even more than any other leader that helped in this movement? It was Muhammad Ali. Not Cassius Clay, Muhammad Ali. And it all started. It all began this day, 56 years ago, February 25th, 1964. Think about this, man. Think about this. Think about it. Think about it. And I'll end with this. If Ali had never come and met Malcolm, and let's say, for instance, everything came to fruition like everybody thought it would, everybody except, well, Angelo Dundee, Ferdy Pacheco, at the time Cassius Clay, Malcolm X, let's say those guys were wrong and the whole majority of folks were right. And as Sonny Liston beats Ali and went around, beats the hell out of him, gets him out of here, told you this guy is a clown, told you this guy, there was no one on the horizon for less Sonny Liston to fight. Now, yes, Sonny, as we look at it right now, was a guy who was on his way down. He was listed at 32 years old, but no one really knew how old he was. He listed his date as May 8th, 1932. Many people thought he was born in Forest, Arkansas back in 1927, but because he was born into poverty and because he was born into second-class citizenship as a black man, that there was really no records of when he was born. Sonny Liston didn't even know how old he was. The mob was the one who gave him the date of when he was born. So many people thought, despite the fact he was saying he was 32, there were many people thought that he was closer to 40 than he was at 32. The fact that he beat Floyd Patterson so easily over the last couple of years when he got into the ring with uh, Clay, that this was a guy who only fought like four or five minutes over the past three or four years. So there was some rust factors involved. He had a bad shoulder that he injured in training, which was causing him problems when he went into the Clay fight. Of course, no one really cared because they thought, who cared about a shoulder injury when he's going to knock this guy out within two minutes anyway? So who really gives a damn if his shoulder is hurt or not, speaking of listing. And then there was Sonny Hubris and arrogance and, and ignorance and the fact that, you know what, I'm going to knock this guy out in two rounds, so who cares? So I'm not going to train. I'm going to eat hot dogs. I'm going to run about a mile a day when I should be running 10. And by training camp, while Geraldine is out, I'm going to be bringing in prostitutes for me to fuck around on. That's going to be, that's going to be my cardiovascular workout right there. Fucking prostitutes. Much better than much better than running miles. So Sully basically came into that fight, yeah, fight in shape to fight maybe two rounds, three rounds tops. And when he found out that this guy Cassius Clay was a whole different animal, that oh shit, <laughs> I'm in big trouble. This guy's strong, fast, good. I can't hit him. I got a sore shoulder. I'm old, and I'm in, I'm and I'm out of shape. Yeah. Uh, let me see here. Fucking women ain't the substitute for running miles. That's not the same as far as getting you in good shape is concerned. So there were some other things that also played into the reason why 
Clay was so dominant, Ali was so dominant against Sonny Liston this day 56 years ago. But you get back it because Sonny's still one of my favorite people as far as back in the day historical figures in the in the world of sports. If Liston KOs Clay 56 years ago, like everyone thought he would, think about this. We don't know the name Muhammad Ali because I sincerely doubt that he gets accepted into the nation of Islam or that fake Muslim bullshit that those guys were claiming to be. There's a very strong chance if we kind of fast forward it to our generation to what we're thinking about. If Sonny Liston beats Cassius Clay like everybody thought he would, there's a very strong chance, strong chance, not guaranteed, but I'm telling you, a very strong chance there is no Michael Jordan or Tiger Woods or Venus and Serena Williams or LeBron James or Simone Biles or Kobe Bryant or there is no Super Bowl winning quarterback named Doug Williams or Russell Wilson. There is no hip-hop rap revolution, even though James Brown might disagree with that. There is no President Barack Obama. I'm not saying these things are guaranteed because we still had warriors. We still have people who were fighting. We still had, as I mentioned before, don't want to discredit, don't want to take away, don't want to disrespect the contributions, the huge, thoughtful, mighty, everlasting contributions that people like Jim Brown and Bill Russell and Jackie Robinson and Jack Johnson and Jesse Owens and Muhammad, excuse me, and uh, Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, and Medgar Edwards, and Rosa Parks, and all of these, many other folks who are not in the spotlight. Many, many others. Um, Thurgood Marshall. Many, 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 many others. But we needed that one person. We needed that one guy. We needed that. We needed the most powerful man on the planet to help move that movement. To help, to help stretch, bring, grow, foster, introduce that movement to everybody. We needed that. And Ali gave that to us. And he gave that to us because of the man that he was and the fact of the position that he had. And none of that comes to fruition. None of this happens. Who knows, man? Who exactly knows if suddenly listing chaos Cassius Clay and sends them into oblivion? Who knows, man? Who knows? Is there a Mike Tyson? Who knows? Am I sitting here in this wonderful townhome that I have, that I love so much, that I want to spend a lot more time with, the wonderful things that I have in my life, the wonderful people that I've met of all different races and faces and places, all the places that I've gone, all the people that I've seen. I'm, I'm, I'm just speaking about from my situation, the reason why I like to take a step back, the reason why I'm talking about this, the reason why I feel so passionate about this, because without Muhammad Ali, I don't know. I don't know if I have the opportunity to meet Dave O'Neill. I don't know if I have the opportunity for that guy to become like my stepbrother. I don't know if I have the opportunity to meet Stephanie Simmons. I don't know if I have the opportunity to meet Laura Hamlin. I don't know if I have the opportunity to meet Felicia Hamm. I don't know if I have the opportunity to meet Frank Harnish. I don't know if I have the opportunity to meet Mike Hoopner. I don't know if I have the opportunity to meet John Wexler. I don't know if I have the opportunity to build these strong, wonderful, lasting, fabulous relationships with these wonderful people who have helped me grow to become the person that I am. 
who, if it for Muhammad Ali, maybe I don't have that opportunity because maybe we're still segregated. Maybe I don't have the opportunity to go to the Wheaton Boys Club and form a long-lasting friendship with Dave O'Neill, who I've known for over 40 years, because at the time where I lived, we were integrated enough to where blacks and white kids could get together and go to school together, live in the same neighborhood together, and participate in sports together, and go to the pool and swim into the same pool, and go play basketball and, and, and play with different races of, of, of people. That was because of Ali. And because of that, I had the opportunity to meet that wonderful man and other wonderful people who have shaped me, helped me, educated me, helped me grow, become the person that I am, the person that I love. I love being me. <laughs> and you should too. I mean, you should love yourself. Don't love me if you want, as you don't want to. I don't give a fuck. No, but 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 so these are the these are the wonderful things that have happened to me, and I can't say without I can't say for sure those would have happened if it wasn't for that night. February 25th, 1964, baby. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. So take that into perspective. All right. Take that. In, and even, you don't, you don't even have to be black. You, know, you don't have to be a, a sports fan. You don't have to be uh, Hispanic or anything like that. Just, just take it into your realm. I mean, if you have any opportunities, maybe you are, maybe you're at a job that you're working that you enjoy. Maybe you marry somebody that, quite possibly 50, 60 years ago wouldn't have been possible. You're living in a neighborhood that 30, 40 years ago wouldn't be possible. Your kids are going to a school and meeting people and having friends and having experiences where 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago, that wouldn't have happened. Why is it happening now? In part, an important part, a part that we shouldn't forget, a debt of gratitude that we should give, is what happened Tuesday, February 25th, 1964. Muhammad, thank you very much for what you've done. Thank you very much for that night. Pay attention. Give thanks. Take a moment and realize how lucky, not just you, not just me, but the whole world is for that night to take place. Hey, hey, the gang's all here. Join in the fun, sing a Sam. Hey, hey, 
the gang's all here. We're gonna swing as one, one more time, y'all. Hey, hey, the gang's all here. Who cares? We're gonna have some fun. Yeah, yeah, hey, hey, the gang's all here. <laughs> We're gonna swing as one. Welcome back, welcome back to the show. Wendell's World in Sports. Yeah, okay, that's enough. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. Had to play a little Muhammad Ali. You know who co-wrote that? You know who really wrote that, produced it? The great Sam Cook. Damn right. You know what? On my next podcast, I was going to do it. This podcast, because I watched, I finally took a night off on Saturday night, you know, since I have no social life. So I finally took a night off, and I watched some stuff that I've had DVR'd for a while that I wanted to get to. And one of the shows that I watched on Saturday was uh, the Motown. They were doing a documentary on Motown. And I'm a huge, I'm a huge 60 guys when it comes to music. You know, everybody knows my heroes as far as that is concerned. It's the great, legendary, wonderful, fantastic. Can't wait to meet him in heaven. Otis Redding. God, God, I hope he's up there so I can still, so I can meet him, Sam Cooke. So Otis Redding, Sam Cooke are my heroes in terms of that genre is concerned, in terms of that time period is concerned, along with Malcolm and others. But they were talking about, and I've become a really huge fan of the Four Tops and what they represented in music and everything. I'm still jonesing on them. Um, but they had a documentary on that and it was like, man, if I could just, you know, there's a couple of guys still living, Smokey Robinson and Steve Cropper and Booker Jones and Duke, uh, Duke, uh, one of the guys from the four tops or whatever. I, I wish, I wish, I wish, I wish I could do like a documentary or a show or something about what it was like back in the 60s, like where you had all of these great groups, where you had the Supremes and you had um, you had Otis Redding and you had Booker T and the MGs and you had Sam and Dave and you had the Four Tops and you had the Temptations and you had Smokey Robinson and you had Ray Charles and you had Sam Cooke and you had James Brown and you had Solomon Burke and you had, oh my goodness, so many others. You had, I mentioned Ray Charles. So you had all of these unbelievable acts unbelievable talent and it's like in the segregated in the segregated time period and it's like I'm quite sure that Motown and Stax artists and and the group and the groups from Chicago and all them places I knew that they played at the Regal and I knew they played at the Howard Theater I knew they all went on the Chitlin Circle and I knew they performed at the Apollo I would just love absolutely love to have a documentary at least just have sit down and have a conversation with those guys and be like, man, what was it like when you were on the road and you were doing a concert at the Apollo and you were with Otis Redding and you were with um, you were with Nina Simone and you were with the Four Tops and you were with the Temps and you were with Etta James and you were with Ray Charles and you were with you were with all of these unbelievable acts when you were with the Iceman Jerry Butler and when you were with Curtis Mayfield. I mean, what was it? What was it like? What stories do you have? I mean, you can even get a little juicy. I mean, I mean, who who are those artists? I mean, was it Wilson Pickett? Was it one of the Isley Brothers? Who was it that was smitten maybe for Etta James? Who was it was one of the singers with Martha and the Vandellas? Who was going after Florence Ballard? I mean, what was the relationship? Who liked Diana Ross and was talking about this, that, and the other? I mean, who was dating who? Who liked who? Who got together with who? I mean, all of them places, like when everything was over, what clubs did you hit? Where did you go? How did you deal with the racism? How did you deal with touring in the South? How did you deal with all that kind of stuff, man? I mean, I would love 
to sit down with those guys and do a documentary or to do a show where it was just like, tell me, tell me everything, man. Tell me what it was like to be on the road because you don't have that crossover. You don't have, I don't know the feelings that Marvin Gaye had toward Otis Redding, or I don't know the, the opinion that Levi Stubbs had with Jerry Butler, or I don't know, you know, Otis Williams, or I don't know Smokey Robinson, what his thoughts and feelings were about Sam and Dave and so forth and so on. Or did you dabble with Sidney Poitier? Did you ever hang out with him or other luminaries within the black community at that time? Did you go and hang out with Jim Brown or, or at that time, Willie Mays or whatever, you know, what this black culture that was being oppressed and segregated at the time, because we couldn't learn, we couldn't live in certain areas and everything like that. What was it like? having those type of relationships? Did you cross over and get to know John Coltrane and get to know Aretha Franklin and get to know Miles Davis and get to know Reverend James Cleveland and get to know these guys? What was it? What was that era like from like 1956 or 55 to 1970, 71, 72, basically when Stax disbanded back in 76 and Motown moved to LA in the early 70s? What what was that like? I would, it would just be fascinating for me to get a lot of guys who are still living and hopefully have their minds intact and everything just to sit down and I would just say, let it go, man. Let it rip. Let me just, you know, just just go. Just open up the floodgates and let the memories out. And nothing's off limits in terms of what you want to talk about, the relationships and the thought, thoughts and feelings about whoever. You know, that would be, that would really be nice. But uh, enough about that. I want to end with the Georgetown Hoyas basketball program, the highs and lows of eight days in the life of a Georgetown basketball fan, man. I tell you, last Saturday afternoon, one of the best wins for Georgetown in the past 10 years. They went ahead without two of their best players and playing with seven scholarship players. They beat number 21 Butler on the road, Mosley Blair, Javon Mosley. I'm sorry, Jacob Mosley, Javon Blair, Terrell Allen played the entire, played the entire game. Jamarco Pickett played 38 minutes of Georgetown's last 14 possessions in the final 10 minutes against the number 21 team on the road at Hinkie Fieldhouse. The 14 possessions scored, Georgetown scored on 11 of them. And unfortunately, <laughs> they finally hit the wall. The people were sitting there talking about how long can this go on? I mean, Yurt 7 was out because of an injury, uh, uh, ankle injury. McClung was out because of an injury. It was like, how long can these guys go? before they finally hit the wall. Well, we find out. We found out the second half of Providence. They led by four, 34-30 at halftime. They were up 49-43 with 14-41 left in the game, and then they proceeded to miss their next 13 attempts, layups, jump shots, four shots, easy shots, three-pointers. I mean, every shot conceivable, they missed. They missed their next 13 attempts over the ensuing 13 minutes. See, good night, see you later. And then they lost to the Paul 74-68. And everybody's up there talking about, I can't believe it, they're not going to make the playoffs, they're not going to make the tournament. Man, even when they beat Butler, I knew they weren't going to make the tournament. I mean, it's wonderful, it's fabulous, it's awesome. I've mentioned before, the way these guys are playing so hard for Coach Ewing, it's inspiring, it's fantastic. Still, one of my favorite all-time Georgetown basketball teams, the way this team has given so much of themselves to each other, to their coach, to the effort, to the passion of playing to the best of their abilities and playing to the, to the, to the limit of physically, mentally, what they can give. It's been inspiring. It's been fantastic, but they're just men. They're just young young men. And sooner or later, when you go up against talented teams, you ain't going to win. 
Even a team like DePaul, who, I mean, last year, we lost 101-69 mm. in, a, in a game that was also crucial for us to make the tournament. And we lost 101-69. It was a bad game. It was a bad game. But this was, this is a tired team. And you also have a situation where, look, I mean, Jacob Mosley is a utilities guy. Javon Blair is a shooter. Terrell Allen is a classic point guard. These guys are all role players. These guys aren't someone like a McClung who can go out and create his own shot. These guys are not someone like a Dirk Seven who's a go-to scorer at the college level, mediocre go-to scorer at this level, but still a guy you can throw the ball into the post and when he's 100% can improve your chances to score. Terrell Allen, Javon Blair, and Jacob Mosley are not those type of guys. Javon Blair is a streak shooter whose streak has ended. I mean, Allen is a point guard, but he's not a scorer. He's a pass-first classic point guard. And Jacob Mosley, as I mentioned before, he can give the rebounds. He can take a charge. He can steady the ship. He can do the dirty work. But he's not going to be a guy, if you need to get buckets, that's going to go out and get you 15 to 20 points a game. He's not going to do that. And Jamarco Pickett has shown that he's also not the guy. I'm waiting, still waiting, even with the depleted roster. I want to see Jamarco coming up. We got games at Marquette, Xavier, Creighton, Villanova. They're not going to win any of them. Well, they're, they're definitely not going to win at Marquette. They're not going to win at Creighton. They're not going to win it against Villanova. Maybe Xavier depends on how Dirk Seven ankle is, but I, I doubt it. So at the very least, they're going to go one and three. I'm just being real here. So and the fact that they won't, they're not going to make the NIT or whatever. It doesn't matter. They're so depleted, man. Let's just get healthy. Let's just get rested. Let's just get ready for next season. There's nothing left to prove in this season. Let Coach Ewing go out. And got a couple of more scholarships left. Thank you uh, to the transfers that we got. A couple of more that we're going to go out and see what we can do to find, not just for this upcoming year, but start building relationships and foundations for the recruiting classes of 2021 and 2022 and such. So we don't need to be worrying about no damn NIT game. I want to see these guys like McClung, see what Dirk Seven's going to do. All indications are he's going to leave after his junior year, whatever. But, you know, guys like um, Ego Efe and Cutis Wahab and Javon Blair and everything, those guys just need to take a break, man. Just get away from basketball for a little bit. You know, go out and enjoy the fact that you're at Georgetown University. Maybe go to a couple of Howard University functions and take a look and talk and romance and get with and learn and grow and get with some of the most beautiful women walking this planet at Howard University at around the ages of 18 and 22. Get to say hello to them and have some fun and become a college kid again and make sure that you're studying hard and just get away from basketball for a few weeks before you get back in there. And you can still, you know, run around and go downtown and Go to all the functions where they're going to have some Howard University girls and some American University girls and some George Washington girls and maybe head on up to Prince George's County and hang out at the University of Maryland, see what you can get down there. And So there's a lot of things to do in the D.C. area, maybe hang around the um, Northeast area, a couple of places. But for the most part, man, just get away from the game of basketball, recharge, regroup, and uh, start thinking about the Kenner League that's going to be happening and start improving your game. There's really no need for these guys be playing in the NIT. Don't think it's really going to be any <clears throat> any advantage for them to do that. And again, it will allow Coach Ewing to go out on the road and start recruiting players and those type of things. Make sure those guys are going to be eligible for next season. But uh, I'm very, very proud of this team. I really am. 
can't say enough about how proud I am of what they've accomplished and what they've done. And for for you idiots out there who really think that Patrick Ewing can't coach or this is a down season, I said this before, and I have some friends of mine who want to show their stupidity by talking about, you know, well, they want to poke the bear and needle me a little bit about how Georgetown's no good and Georgetown can't, Patrick Ewing can't coach. And, you know, it's text messages, so you know, they, they don't share their stupidity and they don't share their stupid statements with the rest of the folks because they know how dumb it is. They're just trying to get them under my skin. They've got me under my skin. So I always say this. Name me a coach in college basketball. Now, if you want to sit there and talk about Ewing recruited players who are no longer with the team because of various reasons, and because of that, that might decrease his ability to coach college basketball. If you want to talk about him choosing talent, keeping talent, the type of players that he recruits, if you want to have that conversation, if you want to lambast Coach Ewing with that criticism, all right, man, whatever. I mean, that's a valid point that you make there. But just in terms of him being a coach, just in terms of the X's and O's, just in terms of him getting the most out of his players, you name me a fucking coach out there this year that could have done a better job, that could have done a better job than what Ewing has done with the players that he has available. Name me one coach. Name me one coach. As I mentioned before, Roy Williams loses one player. He's a very good player. Looks like he's going to be a lottery pick. He's going to be a one and done. But damn, man, North Carolina still has a bunch of four and five star recruits sitting on that sitting on that bench, still playing on that playing for that team. And that team is 10 and 17. 10 and 17. Tell me another coach with the players that Patrick Ewing has available. And you say, well, shit, they are. Coach Krzyzewski was coaching those boys. Oh, without question, they'd be in the NCAA tournament. I mean, give me Georgetown before the loss against Providence was still in the tournament, <laughs> and this is a guy since December who had been who has had no margin for error, and this is his third season coaching college basketball. He took over a team that was under five hundred, was fourteen and eighteen, and I was hearing this bullshit last year. Oh, I can't believe this. I can't believe that Ewing can't coach. Ewing can't coach. Look at that record. They're only 19 and 14. Ewing can't coach. Do you realize that two years ago that this team was 4 and 14 and 19? It's the second year he turns this program around and gets them to the NIT. This season with a depleted roster still has them in contention for an NCAA tournament berth. Still getting victories even though he's lost two of his best players due to injury. Lost four key players at the very least, three key players at the very least, two really important players who decided to leave the program, mutual agreement or whatever. And you're sitting up there telling, trying to tell me that Coach Ewing can't coach? You're going to try to tell me that somehow, some way, that there should be a there's a coach out there that can get better from the players that he has right now? Who? Who? You tell me who, and damn it, I'll get them to be the coach of the team. Who? Who? And I know I sound like an owl. Who? Who? But name me somebody. You can't. The criticism, and again, this is his third season. He takes the team from 14 and 18, a team he inherits 14 and 18. Their main recruit, Tremont Waters, decommits when he found out all the nonsense that was going on with Georgetown JT3 getting fired. The program is up in the air. Coach Ewing comes in late, doesn't have a chance to recruit anybody, goes out and gets DeMarco Pickett and Devon Blair, who become. Uh, all Big East freshman team members. 
get them above 500. The second year, with a starting backcourt with a three-star guard in Matt McClung, a four-star guard in, in um, oh, wow, I can't, James Akinjo. He puts three players along with Josh LeBlanc, LeBlanc on the all-freshman team. James Akinjo is the biggest freshman of the year with so many young players out there starting who are not one-and-done players, so don't bring up Kentucky and Coach Calipari or Coach K and Duke. With those three players who are supposed to be building blocks for the future, gets them to be 19-14, knocks off Marquette on the road when they were ranked, knocks off Villanova at home, the defending champions where they were still ranked, then comes into this season, has to deal with all the bullshit that he deals with now, and still has them in contention for making the NCAA tournament, and you fucking idiots are sitting up there talking about this man can't coach, or Ewing needs to go? What, you want to bring in Shaka Smart? How's Shaka Smart doing in Texas right now when they're playing in front of 14 people against, what, they, what game was that, Kansas State or Texas Tech or somebody? It wasn't Texas Tech, because Texas Tech would have brought more people. I think it was Kansas State this past week where they had a whole shot of the uh, arena where Texas plays in, and how many people were in there? Like 14? And seven were in there just to study because they needed to find a quiet place to go ahead and, and study for their exams? That's the coach that you were clamoring for? That's the coach that's supposed to save the day for Georgetown? That's the guy who's supposed to be better at coach than Coach Ewing? Coach is building. He's bringing in some good players. He's going to bring in some good talent. I was listening to the Casual Hoya podcast the other night, and they brought in a recruiter, and they were talking about Kobe Clark and... And uh, this kid from Chicago, uh, Beard. Oh, the first name I forgot. Shit, I've watched enough YouTube clips of the guy. But, you know, they're talking about these guys are very underrated. These guys are going to help out the program. These guys are going to be contributors to the program. These are not one and doneers. These are guys who don't have already thinking about what I need to do to get to the NBA in about a year or 10 months. I mean, these guys are program builders. And if you look at college basketball right now, and you take a look at Gonzaga, you take a look at San Diego State, even though they lost to UNLV, you take a look at Dayton, Dayton, you don't have to have a plethora of five-star recruits on your team. You don't have to have eight or nine, four and five-star recruits with three or four one-and-doneers on your team to win championships. Let me ask you a question. With all of the one-and-dones and the five-star recruits and the number one recruiting number one recruiting labels that Kentucky has garnered throughout the John Calipara era, how many championships has he won? One, where he had that awesome team of Anthony Davis and a couple of others, and where Terrence Jones, the junior, was the one who kind of led the way for that group. Mike Krzyzewski, how many championships has he won? The greatest college basketball coach of all time, one of them, who has adopted now going for the one and done. How well did he do last year with three first-round lottery picks? Did he make it to the Final Four? Yeah, he won a championship with Justice Winslow and, Jamel, and Jaleel Okafor and, uh, and those guys. But stop with the Georgetown needs to go out and get themselves a recruiting class that's going to rival Kentuckys. And how, how's Memphis doing with the recruiting class that they brought in? Now, I know James Weissman threw everything out of whack, but they still have about another three or four really talented five-star players on their team, freshmen on their team. How are they doing? So don't give me this bullshit that, oh my goodness, Ewing's not getting any five-star recruits, so that means he sucks. Hey man, build that team. Villanova became one of the better teams over the last five years. Oh, I'm sorry. They became the best college program over the last five years, winning two 
national championships. How many five-star recruits did he have on, did Jay Wright have on his team? Oh, and there, by the way, for those who are speaking about, you know, Ewing needs to go, Ewing needs to go because he's not winning national championships his second and third year as coach. There was a point, there was a stretch in the Jay Wright era where he was a mediocre coach record-wise. And there was talk about him possibly getting fired during a three or four year stretch before Josh Hart and a couple of others bailed him out and won him a championship and put him back on his rightful, on his rightful place of being one of the elite basketball coaches in America. How's Sean Miller doing? How's Will Wade of LSU doing? I mean, damn, they're cheating to get the players openly without question cheating. Are they winning any championships? Are they making any final fours? How's that all about? So, you know, do, do I think that Georgetown could win championships by recruiting two stars? No, I don't think so. Do I think that, you know, Georgetown getting players who are being recruited by Hostra, St. Bonaventure, uh, you know, uh, North Carolina A&T and Howard, if they get a bunch of players who are being, who, who are being recruited by those schools, are they going to be able to beat the Dukes and the North Carolinas and the Kentuckys and the Villanovas of the world? Well, no. But Coach Ewing's doing a lot more than that. And he's still in chase for a couple of four- and five-star recruits. Thank you very much. So leave Ewing the fuck alone unless you know what the fuck you're talking about. And if you sit there and criticize Coach Ewing after three years about he's not a good coach because he hadn't gotten that team into the NCAA tournament yet, you, when it comes to Georgetown basketball, are a fucking idiot. <sighs> All right. Thank you very much. <laughs> And on that positive note, I want to thank everybody for listening to the program. Man, that was a long one. That was a long one. Wow. If you're still listening after this, you are the man. You are the woman. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. So, yeah, man, if you want to rate and review, please do. I want to thank you very much for listening. Got a lot of stuff that I want to talk about. I'll be working diligently with the special ed kids uh, this week, starting tomorrow. <coughs> so, <coughs> excuse me, my next podcast will probably drop either <clears throat> Saturday or Sunday because I am interested in doing that Motown Motown discussion about Motown stacks who was the sexiest, who was the best who was the sexiest, Tammy Terrell who was the sexiest, Flo Ballard who was the prettiest, Mary Wells who was the prettiest, Carla Thomas who was the prettiest, Mary Wilson who was very talented Otis Redding who had the best voice, Levi Stubbs. So all of these things I want to talk about on my next podcast. Ah, all right, I'm out of here. Music. Music.